Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the delightfully pugnacious Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once had to serve 30 days for punching Brian Cranston in the face over a disagreement about frozen yogurt. Mr. Ryan Siebold. <laughs> Who's breaking bad now, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> ah, your nose. I broke your bad nose. Happy New Year to you, Jason. We made it. 2021, bitch. Yeah, man. Nah, dude. Uh, it, was a, it was a rough year. We, it was touch and go there for a minute if we were able to make it through. But uh, sure enough, here we are. And... What better way to ring in the new year than talking about movies, Ryan? Absolutely. We could ring it in with the diving bell and the butterfly. Get it? Ho-ho! <laughs> That's movies and a pun, listeners. That's a two-for-one special, y'all. You're I'm charging. Welcome. I'm charging by the pun. <laughs> we got a couple good movies here, dude. Well, we got diving bell and the butterfly, and we've got Dr. Sleep and... Uh, course you know we're gonna start off this segment with just one of them and ryan go ahead and set that one up for us diving bell and the butterfly from 2007 directed by a mr julian schnabel uh this is about jean dominique bobby or jean do uh as they called him in the film Editor-in-chief of French fashion bible Elle Magazine has a devastating stroke at age 43. The damage to his brain stem results in locked-in syndrome, which is a sumbitch. Uh, it doesn't say that, but uh, with which he <laughs> is almost completely paralyzed and only able to communicate by blinking an eye. Bobby painstakingly dictates his memoirs uh, via the only means of expression left to him. Jason, what did you think about this movie? I'll tell you in a minute, but first I just have to say that Reed was beautiful, dude, because I don't think either of us expected it to be as descriptive as it was, and you're like, when he breaks his spine and severs his spinal cord, blah, 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 and it's like, <laughs> probably wasn't the tone that was written in, but that was just perfect, man. <laughs> Man, I, yeah, Fit. I got nothing. I'm just trying to bring a little ray of sunshine to an otherwise bummer of a movie. Um. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, yeah, uh, Ryan, I don't know about you. I loved this movie. I loved every moment of this movie. I have a lot to talk about here. And uh, normally, listeners, right now, we would start things off with a trailer for you. If you've listened to the show before, you know that when we do the foreign films, often we're not able to bring those trailers and clips to you. So that's going to be the case here. There is a dubbing option that you can listen to on the DVD, uh, possibly streaming as well. However, on YouTube, there's none of those clips, so we don't have anything for you. Just Ryan and Jason for the next hour. 
uh, feel free to bail if, if you're not into that. But for our four to six listeners who enjoy what we have to say, let's get into it. So, Ryan, the film starts off and we've got this pretty interesting credit sequence. It's a photo montage of different x-rays and it's set to La Mer, which for those that don't know is the original uh, Beyond the Sea song. And from there, we get our opening shot of the film. And this is going to set up a storytelling device that's going to be unique and heavily leaned on for the first third of the film. So the opening shot is very hazy. It's very out of focus. And we soon see these two nurses talking. The They're going in and out of focus. The camera's floating around. We've got some sort of unique Dutch angles going on there. And before long, we realize that we're looking at the environment around us through a first-person perspective. And we're in the mind and head of our protagonist, Jean Dun- Jean. Oh, man, I'm always going to butcher this. Jean-Dominique Bobby, which is how they say it. I very much like how he says his name, Jean-Dominique Bobby. Just call him Jando. With that little bleh, bleh. Jando, yeah. So his friends call him Jando. Uh, he's played by, I want to say, Matthew Amalric. Might be Matei Amalric or Amalric. I don't know. I never spoke French. But uh, great performance. You don't Either way, say. He learns that oh, he man, just... you, that's a that's a <laughs> That wasn't apparent. That wasn't what self-evident by the way that I just lined up the French language and just took a freaking sledgehammer to it right there. Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, mashed I... it into the ground. Way more Inspector Clouseau than Amelie right now. <laughs> you are. I could also just I could also just butcher it with like a really like thick modelin like Matthew Amelie, and you can't understand what I'm saying. But it's like ah, oh, but it sounds right. Go yeah, on. Just just go full Peter Sellers on it, and uh, we'll be exactly. Fine. We'll get it's this. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Either way, we do learn that he is soon uh, woken from a. Three-week coma after suffering a stroke. Now, Ryan, before we continue, again, as I mentioned, roughly the first third of the film, maybe a little more, about 40 minutes of a roughly two-hour film, are told from this very unique perspective, this first-person perspective, uh, the likes of which I don't think we've really seen done, except for, of course, Hardcore Henry, which I can't honestly say that I saw because I heard it was garbage. But uh, what did you think of the way that the film was presented? Did that work for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it took me a minute to realize this was shot by a Mr. Janusz Janusz Kaminski uh, of Spielberg fame. Uh, It was also produced by Kathleen Kennedy. So I'm sure she had the inside track on that. Uh, Hey, I know a guy. Let me make a phone call. Um, I thought it was a little in your face at first. Maybe it was meant to be that way. Uh, Again... I watched this on a bigger screen and man, you could see like all up in everyone. <laughs> My first note is if I ever have a, a stroke or, or an accident of any kind, uh, get me my space, man. Like you could talk to me from a few <laughs> feet away. I could hear you, um, you know, and we could blink to each other or whatever we need to communicate through. You don't need to be, uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to be smell vision I don't need to be up in your mouth, uh, which uh, Kaminsky put us up in, uh, you know, up in some doctor's mouths. And then it was, uh, you know, so, some emphasis was put on the fact that uh, he was going to have some some sexy hot doctors, uh, nurses coming in to to help. He just kept stressing that. Don't worry. They look really great. I'm like, maybe 
are they good at what they do though or are they just hot like are we <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the uh, like what's the priority level structure level going here from 10 to 1 <laughs> where's hot and where is good <laughs> at their jobs uh i loved the first part dude this movie is just it's a beautiful movie it's a very simple film you don't really go anywhere exotic um yeah. There's no sweeping drone shots or, you know, helicopter beach scene or anything like that. There's nobody's riding horses. It just kind of is. And, uh, man, um, Kaminsky had his work cut out for him. He said, here's what I'm going to do. And it was uh, it was pretty interesting to watch, considering you're in a hospital bed for most of the film. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting was the way that they used the dialogue and, ra- and specifically, I'm talking about his sort of inner monologue dialogue, if you will. I know that sounds yeah. like this inner monologue dialogue, right? I guess we'll just say inner dialogue. Eh, that's probably right. Sure. Um, but yeah, either way, the interplay. So to back up a minute, and in case anyone who's listening hasn't seen the film, the condition that he specifically has, uh, Jean-Dominique Bubby, is that he has what's called locked-in syndrome. Okay, And that's basically where his body is entirely paralyzed but his mind is fully functioning. And so it's as if he is a prisoner in his own body. And so the way that the film presents this is we get this first-person perspective. And, and again, as, as you alluded to, Ryan, everything's sort of tilted and very close. And things are going in and out of focus. You know, really super shallow depths of field that they're playing with. And it's really interesting because... Right away, it puts you exactly in the mind and body of the protagonist. As we're watching this, there's this really interesting sort of atmosphere that takes place where you're seeing and hearing the people that are speaking to the main character, but then you're also hearing his own thoughts in your own head sort of way. And, you know, the inner monologue is bumped up relative to the exterior dialogue. And so you're being talked to while also hearing yourself think at the same time. And I think that when you have a movie like this that can so effectively place you in the mind, body, spirit, however you want to say, of the protagonist, it was a really unique experience. I can't say that I had really ever seen a movie like that before i mean maybe there's something that this borrowed from but i certainly hadn't seen it so uh, again it was as close to a a unique and and one-of-a-kind movie going experience as i've had in a really long time did you feel the same way Uh, yeah you know obviously the closest thing that i could think of um aside from hardcore henry jason's favorite movie uh is um uh, video games, first-person shooters. That's kind of the yeah. only thing that this harkened to for me, as lame as that sounds. Uh, that's kind of what it, you know, r- reminded me of in that way. Um, so, you know, hey, par- paralyze the video game coming at you in 2021. <laughs> uh, it's a, you know, rock star release. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Funny thing. I know that we've talked about before how both of us sort of grew up on music videos and we have like a great affinity for music videos. And oh, I hope you're about to say what them. I think you're going to say, buddy. I hope you I'll have a lot of respect for you if you're about to say what I, if you're about to say what I think you're about to say. Go ahead. Do you think I'm about to say four words that go smack my bitch up? Oh, no. What? Ah, oh, man. Well, now. OK, well, now after I finish, now I have to hear what you thought I was going to say. I don't know if you remember. Did you ever see the video for Prodigy's Smack My Bitch Up? I did. 
Yeah, yeah, that's, so a lot of that, this is actually, at times, I was reminded of that, because that video is obviously very hyper-stylized, the entire thing's told in first person, there's a lot of playing with the sort of frame rates and effects, and everything's very colorful and fast-moving, and so, um, yeah, there were times, actually, where, obviously, you know, that's a much edgier sort of production, and this is much more lyrical and emotional than, than anything that production tries to do but I was reminded of it at times so uh so yeah no now you got to tell me what you thought I was gonna say and by the way sorry to disappoint you oh yeah no um this is where I show my age a little bit and go back a little farther than you uh this reminded me of one by Metallica um the the black and white music video uh that borrowed from Mm -hmm. the uh the old film Johnny Got His Gun where the man was uh uh, you know, coming back from war and he had locked in syndrome and it was the same thing. And it was done in actually a, uh, a much more depressing way. <laughs> and then we yeah. Metallica <laughs> video where he's begging for death pretty much the whole time and uh, saying, Oh yeah. God, somebody please help me. Nobody could hear me talk and this and that. And I think he's even got like a bag over his head cause he's been blown up uh, in the battlefield and all of that. It's, or he's got bandages and stuff. It's uh You know, awesome song, really sad music video, same kind of premise. Um, But uh, yeah, smack my bitch up. That'll do too. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, So one of the things that I do like about the way that the film is presented earlier on is I do appreciate the way that a lot of the decisions are motivated and justified, right? So at first, you know, when we see... We get those first opening shots where it's kind of jarring and everything's super up close. And there's that constant focus going in and out of focus. Soon after that, we end up learning that this guy's eye is completely fucked. Like he basically destroyed his, I don't forget if it's right or left eye, but one of his eyes is no longer irrigating itself. And it's going to cause the other one to fail. Yeah, it's his right eye. He's a left eye blinker. Correct. Yeah. And so as you're watching this and once they say that, it's like, oh, cool. So not only is there this really cool effect going on where it's sort of stylized, but it's also motivated by the storytelling. And so it has a reason to exist other than just simply it looks cool. So I appreciated that aspect of it. Now, this whole thing about his right eye not working leads to what I think everybody is going to agree is by far the scene's most harrowing sequence. And that is when we get the first-person perspective of his eye being sutured shut. Ryan, Yikes. what did you think about that scene? Yeah, fuck that. I mean, yeah. No, <laughs> no thanks. Hard pass on that for me. That was It was pretty squeamish, dude. I mean, it was like, you know... I, I think I've mentioned this before when we were talking about... I forget if it was... Oh, the lobster, actually. And he has the scene at the end where he's going to put the knife, knife to his eyes. Like, I'm and, like anytime sharp stuff gets near people's eyes, like, that's my personal, like, squeamish torture porn response thing, right? So, yeah, when you're sitting there literally watching, you know, the eyelid and the needle and thread going in and out from an inside perspective, and then you take a step back to consider that, like, that's exactly what somebody's watching when they're in that scenario and that's happening, man, I I never considered what it would look like from the inside to have your eye sutured shut. And that was just, again... Quite uncomfortable. Man, I think about that constantly. Um, <laughs> top, of my, top of my fear list. 
Nope. Uh, yeah, that that was a weird one for me. Um, luckily, we were through that pretty quickly. Uh, I think you and I dealt with this before, too, during the cure for wellness where he was getting his teeth removed. Um, yep. Yeah, that kind of stuff is uh, no good. Put me under. Like, I don't un- just put me down. I guess if he's coming out of a coma, maybe uh, putting him under isn't the uh, the top thing you want to do when he just woke up. Hey, let's put him down again. See, let's roll those dice. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, again, if that ever happens, just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd prefer not to go through this. This was uh, a very self- self-reflective film for me where i said yeah fuck that fuck that i had a lot of fuck that checklists uh crossed off (laughs) on this one that would make a good that would make a good fake commercial someday ryan's fuck that checklist yeah Uh, well this crossed a lot of them off um no commercial (laughs) needed just watch diving bell and the butterfly big old majority of them that's fantastic by the way, I know that you're a big cinematography guy, and and obviously, like I said, you know you know a lot about Chris Doyle that I don't know or anything. Are you super familiar with Janusz Kaminski and some of the different techniques that he used to get that specific look that he does here and in a lot of the Spielberg movies at the time? No, no, enlighten me. What you got? I don't necessarily have, like, a specific anecdote, but... What he was doing is he was really experimenting with the approach to cinematography. So to the to the standpoint that, by the way, to everyone that's listening, in case, especially if, if you're younger, you have to remember that, like, this is, you know, 90s, early 2000s, uh, early to mid 2000s, Janusz Kaminski. So we're still very much on traditional cinema, 35 millimeter film cameras. And so one of the things that he did, for example, is there was a lot of sort of general stuff like experimenting with the frame rates and playing around with sort of shutter speeds, whatnot. One of the things he actually did, so, uh, and Ryan, I know you, you're you better with the, the names of the equipment, but you know the little plastic piece that basically goes around uh, that lets the appropriate amount of light into the film exposure, whether you set it to like 24 frames, 30, 60, etc. Um, okay. There's a little plastic piece that basically like it basically flies around in a little loop inside the camera and it prevents a certain amount of light going in. Right. Because if that thing wasn't there, it would just be full on light. And if you Talking blocked about the it completely, there'd be no light. Yeah. Yeah. So so basically what he did is he went in and he played he he actually like would shave out parts of the shutter to give it like different shapes so that the light would basically come in and hit oh, the wow. film strip differently which would then allow for a different exposure technique and a different look. Um, some of the other things that he was doing is he was shooting at one frame rate and then processing at another. So for example, he would shoot at 12 FPS and then print it at 24 FPS. And so it gives it a very unique look to the the motion and you know a lot of the different elements to again just the look of his film whether it's the graininess of certain uh certain films and he was often doing a lot of this within the same movie so he kind of started doing this in Saving Private Ryan and again you'll notice that there's a couple scenes where when you look at them next to each other like they're not consistent but for whatever reason they don't contrast with one another either so really really interesting work from Kaminsky during this period I mean 
the dude's a badass. He shot Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. I mean, he's Spielberg's boy. Going all the way back to like Indiana yeah. Jones and shit. Like this guy's been around. He's seen some things. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I. Um, that's funny you brought up Saving Private Ryan first because that's the first thing I thought of when I was watching this in a first person view is the uh, storming the beach of Normandy scene. Um, yeah, when. Uh, you're seeing the view uh, through Tom Hanks's first person view on the battlefield at times after he's been blown up. You get the ringing in his ear and all of that. And um, they use sound and visuals to really immerse you and put you in that moment as that character from time to time. And uh, that's kind of the first thing I thought of when I was watching some of these te- same techniques, what you're saying uh, uh, I didn't know that he actually physically carved out part of the shutter to let light hit the film differently. Um, makes sense, but uh, now that you're mentioning it, you know that would be a weird thing to do. But um, yeah, yeah. And also, funny random aside, just because I don't, I don't know if anyone's ever seen him, but this is like a a big, you know, friendly Polish looking dude, right? Uh, he was married for six years to Holly Hunter. Did you know that? Who is this? Janusz Kaminski was married oh. for six years to Holly Hunter. No, I didn't know that. People are married to people, though, in Hollywood. That happens. Um. <laughs> she just loved the way that he shot her. He, he made her look gorgeous, and she was just like, oh, I don't have to pay him for this if I'm married to him. Yeah. Just lugging him around as like her own personal uh, cinematographer for all of her movies. Note to self, get better at what I do. Meet pretty girl. <laughs> <laughs> Grab yourself a Holly Hunter. Yeah, two more things on my checklist. Um, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, that sort of thing and who's married to who and what's going on here uh, in just a bit. I want to get a little deeper into the plot first, and I want to get your opinion on a couple of things. Fair enough. So when we progress from there, we actually start to get some backstory, and we learn that Jean was previously the editor-in-chief of L Magazine. That's right, The L Magazine. So, And this is a guy that lived a wonderful, charmed life. He had all the money, beautiful women, huge family, flying around here, there, everywhere, respect, everything that you'd want. And to your point earlier about the way that the film utilizes visuals and music, I really liked the sequence where he's showing all of the different things that he does. And I thought it was a really sort of like funny little touch, the whole little photo montage where he's talking about how beautiful he used to be. And then he's like, and we see, you know, this guy with this rose and all these sort of like women playing around with him and stuff. And he's like, that's not even me. That's Marlon Brando. And I, sort <laughs> right. of, I thought that was a pretty funny little moment. Um, like, oh yeah. And then that's from there, me. you know, there I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then shortly after we learned that, you know, we, we've just spent a few minutes, you know, living this high life and seeing all this, beautiful, wonderful staging and cinematography, etc. We jump right back to him starting his therapy. And this is when, you know, the two beautiful nurses like you're talking about, which, by the way, I'm sure was just to sort of help him out with it, right? Because, I mean, at that point, you know, you're alone. Like, if someone's going to be like that up in your face, right? Like, why not grab a couple pretty women to help make it a little easier, right? Well, maybe, he was- maybe he'll be a little more patient or something. He was very well known to as a, you know, playboy and, and uh, you know, hanging out with models and this and that. So I definitely understand why uh, it was just a weird thing to lead with. <laughs> That's my physician, you know, <laughs> um, you know, coming out of a coma and all of the things. And now I'm, you know, stuck in my own head. I got locked in syndrome, but 
hey, rest assured, we got some hot chicks coming. Uh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah. That is not on my list of priorities right now. And very quickly, we finally get the sort of crux of what's going to be the second half of the movie, if you will. And that's where they introduce the notion of how he is going to communicate with the outside world. So, you know, they start with the whole system that they're going to read off letters of the alphabet in order of most commonly used letters to least. And he's going to blank once to indicate when they arrive at the correct letter and they're going to spell out words one letter at a time. I believe I read something that said an average word took them about four minutes to get through uh, in real life. So that's the method of communication that they devise. And Jean quickly becomes frustrated by the process, as you can imagine any, any of us would, really. He's this guy who's used to things coming very easily. He's used to being successful. And so this is also where we get the expression of the titular diving bell which is one of those sort of old school diving suits that they used to talk about, the big metal ones, right, with the pump that goes through and the air's got to get pumped into. And he basically feels as though he's trapped in one of these diving bells because he's got this locked-in syndrome and it's very easy to see. And I really appreciated the cutaways that they made to that several times over the course of the movie. And just to remind you, it's a, it's a very apt metaphor. I like that, the way that they used it. Shortly thereafter, he's going to receive a visit from this guy, Pierre, and this is also something that haunts him. He was a colleague of his previously, and there was an incident where Jean was on a plane, and this guy, Pierre, was like, hey, I really need to get over to, and I forget if it was Paris, wherever they were going, um, can I have your seat? It's the last seat available, and Jean ends up giving it up, and then that plane ended up being taken hostage, and uh, Pierre, rather, by extension, was taken hostage for six years. And it sort of still haunts Jean to the point that he never even called him once he he got released. And, you know, from there he receives, he being Jean, receives another visit from a friend. Doesn't go quite as well. You know, the guy's on the phone and calls him a vegetable. And, you know, he gets offended accordingly. And I also like the moment that happened right after that where Jean sort of suggests that he wants to die. And the nurse gets really pissed off at him. It's kind of, you know, it was one of those moments where... It reminds us, as well as the protagonist, that though this tragedy is certainly and uniquely his, it does extend far beyond himself, you know, and that's sort of what I think a lot of the second half of the film is going to say. We're going to see, we spend the first half in Jean's mind seeing how difficult everything is, and then in the second half, we start to meet all of the people around him and all of the people who are supporting him and all of the work that they put into his recovery as well. And we understand that this is much larger than just him. And I really appreciated the way that they were able to sort of achieve both of those statements uh, without conflicting on one another. Yeah. Um, so this is where in the movie where they, they pull out of that first person view and we start to go into a traditional uh, cinematography scene, um, you know, around uh the hospital and kind of following him around. We start to meet other characters uh, like his, not his wife, but the mother of his children, as he calls it, who mm -hmm. is there as his support system. Um, we also have brief flashbacks into a mistress scenario. Um, Innes, 
uh, I believe her name was, and we see different romps through his memories and him reminiscing while he's in the hospital bed of Mm -hmm. him having fun times on vacation with his mistress. Um, And then we also meet his children, of which he has three. And, uh, And then there's the... Uh, he had a. Uh, we we find out um, right around this time that he also has a lingering book deal uh, with a publisher, um, and he has asked uh, them to send someone to help dictate with this alphabet scenario, and uh, so they send a blonde uh, who looks very much like I mentioned she's blonde because she looks very much like his the mother of his children, and I kept getting those two yeah. confused. They would be dressed very similar. They looked very similar. They'd both be at his bedside. Uh, there wasn't a lot to really separate. Uh, you know, who I don't know. I, I just, um, I had a hard no, time. I kinda... totally hear what you're saying. And, he, and yeah. even those two looked a lot like the two nurses. Right. And, and what's what also saying. funny, I don't know if you felt the same way. It took me like a solid four minutes to make sure that the one nurse wasn't Naomi Watts. Did you think she looked like Naomi Watts? They all look like Naomi Watts. Yeah. I, just <laughs> I mean, there um, are certainly worse people to look like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, they really kind of painted the, um, and I'm going somewhere with this, but they painted the mother yeah. of his children to be, um, you know, the, the one by his bed. And then, it, you know, they show him wrestling with his relationship there. Uh, she stuck by him. Um, he kind of brushes her off at first and uh, she she sticks, by, stands by her man. Then we have the mistress uh, that ends up. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to watch. This was right up there with the eyelid sewn shut scene. But the mistress calls up later in the film and uh, wants to talk to him privately. But there's no one to communicate with her. The wife or the mother of his children uh, is the one that is the only one there. It's on a Sunday or something, and she's got to dictate. So they end up you know, having this conversation about how the mistress still loves him and this and that, but not in this condition. And, uh, when she, when he gets better call, um, but you know, and then meanwhile, the, the mother of his children slash, you know, wife, whatever, that's been there this whole time, uh, just has to like sit and dictate this woman's love to, uh, to John Doe. So, um, kind of, a you know, it, it's funny when, you know, we're, we all have our ghosts and our demons and things that we deal with on our day to day. I thought it was a, a an interesting reflection to show, like uh, when they all catch up to you a little bit and you can't you can't run, you can't duck, you can't dodge, <laughs> you can't make up excuses. You just gotta take the blow, and it and uh, and that you know he took several of those, like you said, between his friend from Beirut uh, who was held ca- captive, and then you know now this and the wife, his children, and then the. Then it gets even deeper with the the mistress and all of these things. It was a, a the Playboy's life got caught, you know, kind of caught up with him, and uh, so that brings me to a point I want to make, and uh, okay. I, I'm gonna um, kind of toss it to you. Okay. Supposedly, uh, as I read in a few articles about this film about John Doe, this is a true story. Uh, supposedly the mother of his children is the one that bailed and wanted nothing to do with him in real life. The mistress Mm -hmm. is actually the one that stood by his side and uh, was the one that helped him learn how to 
communicate and dictate his book and all of that. And she got mm-hmm. totally fucking hosed by Julian Schnabel, who decided he was going to turn this whole story <laughs> on his ear, on its ear, and uh, and paint the mother because he felt like that was the right thing to do. That that was a bet made for a better film, even though it was a sure. biopic about about a real person with real people that were still alive. Uh, sans John Doe. Um, spoiler alert: <laughs> It doesn't make it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I thought that was kind of a douchey move that you would. So it kind of left me in this weird uh, conundrum of, you know, like, do I like this movie? And as a movie, I love it. But as a <laughs> biopic, I fucking hate it because they they like made some really big character choices. Um, yeah. For, for biopics like this, when they make character changes uh, for narrative purposes, is that something you support? Or would you be against that, knowing that now? Like, does that make you see this movie any differently? Or what are your thoughts on that, Jason? Okay. So, a couple different things going on with that one. Uh, Firstly, to to answer your question quickly, no, it doesn't change the way that I look at the film. So, we'll just get that out of the way. Uh, Secondly, I do understand why such decisions are and may be made. In such instances, I don't understand why this movie did that, because here's the thing. It's not like we've been super invested in really anybody except Jean-Dominique at this point. So if you were to present this movie to me and you you presented it as it did happen in real life, as though his wife didn't want anything to do with him and his girlfriend was the one that was by his side, that wouldn't have changed anything about his journey, about his struggle, about the dynamic. And so it's interesting to hear you say that because I don't understand why he felt it was beneficial for this particular story. Now, if, for example, let's say that like there was a situation where, again, just coming up with something off the top of my head, but if it was something where like Jean Michael actually turned his back on his wife and his kids and embraced his mistress. I could understand why maybe if you were telling a certain version of that story, that might conflict with the character that you were trying to establish, right? Because maybe the audience would lose some sympathy for that character, right? Because, or maybe, you know, or you just don't feel like exploring that aspect of, you know, illness and relationships and all of those things. But I didn't I don't I don't see how changing that would have affected John Dominique one way or another in this movie. So I get what you're saying, but I don't know. I mean, I'm just learning this for the first point. And and look, there's a a large contingent of people out there, a large contingency of people that what really happened and being authentic, you know, it it definitely has an effect on the way that they consume the art and the way that it affects their opinion of it. I'm definitely one of those people that's always sort of separated the art from the artist. And I know that the words inspired by a true story mean we made this up, but we started from somewhere that was true, right? Like it doesn't mean it's an authentic representation, but like I said, normally when you see the changes that they make to stories, like I said, it's like, oh, well, this is problematic because, you know, we need a good hearted character. And if we 
allow this, then you know it paints him in a negative light, and that's not what we're trying to do here. You do see that with a lot of biopics, especially the ones that are officially sanctioned by members of the family if it's somebody that's passed. You know, obviously they want to show respect, and it's difficult to go into some of the more negative aspects, right? Like the whole uh, the whole Dr. Dre scene from uh, Straight Outta Compton and stuff like that. You know, like they really they really make him look a lot better than than what really happened in real life, right? So <laughs> I, I I understand you know a lot of the reasons for that, and and that's a perfect example, I guess. You know, in a movie like that, like knowing what Dre really did wouldn't play so well because we need to like Dre. Um, and you know, so making the change in that movie for a mainstream audience that isn't familiar with NWA and doesn't understand that, you know, these are ultimately flawed dudes from like a world that most of us know nothing about. Right. That, that makes sense. So I guess to answer your question, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. Didn't affect my view of this film, but yeah, I do wonder why they made that decision. I, I, it's my understanding that a lot of the friends and, and family of, uh, Jean Doe um, did not sign off like they didn't really like this movie because of that. He, I guess he has two kids, not three, and his kids are still mm. alive. And they're like, who's this third one? Like, you know, the, these people have family and friends and stuff. And you watch, you know, character choices like that. It's like you're seeing yourself represented on screen. That's got to be a surreal experience. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of felt like um, that was kind of a douche move on Chernobyl's part. And I agree with you. I think that <laughs> there are times when it's motivated, when it's needed in film. Um, and sometimes it just waters it down. <laughs> kind of going back to the moment where he decides that he wants to write this book and they send the the girl out to uh, you know help him write it and whatnot. Uh, one of the things that I do like, because we touched on the whole diving bell metaphor, but we didn't mention the fact that this is also where the butterfly metaphor comes from. So he has this very wonderfully inspired speech, and it's set to some really interesting visuals where a butterfly is being born or metamorphized or what have you. And in the movie, his imagination is the butterfly, right? Because he's locked in here, and obviously we get the diving bell part, but... Once 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 the nurse gets upset at him for suggesting that he just wants to die, it's kind of a wake up call to him. And he basically says, all right, dude, you know what? This is your reality. You know, you're a successful guy. You've done all this shit in your life. You know, you've overcome way more than this. What are we going to do here? And that sort of becomes his call to where he's like, you know what? I want to write my book. And that inspires that phone call to the publisher. So. One of the things that I really like is, again, you know, it's something that I've, I've mentioned before, but when movies really just talk about the nature of art and imagination and how important it is to us as human beings to stay mentally aware and healthy and all of those things, um, you know, his imagination is what allows him to go to these worlds and crazy vistas that he's never going to be able to go to. And perhaps some people think it's kind of trite and cliched to suggest that, but it's it's a message that I'm I'm more than happy to hear. I think especially these days where you know art's been all but eliminated from school budgets, and people just don't really give a shit about creators and who's making what, and no one reads anymore. I think it's just really important that we remind people what constitutes art and how important it is. And especially, you know, having gone through quarantine recently, there was a nice little bump where everyone was like, oh shit, you know, we need to make sure that we show a proper amount of respect to all these creators of TV and music and books that are getting us through this difficult time. But it went away really quickly. It's just, you know, it's our nature. But I think it's important that we recognize 
how important it is to stay imaginative and how how much it has an effect on our health mentally and otherwise. And so I really enjoyed the imaginative moments as well. You know, there's they talk about how the hospital used to be home to a ballet school and how it used to house royalty or something like that. And so, you know, there's certain segments where Jean's being pushed through on his wheelchair through the halls and there's a woman in a huge, you know, 1800 style Victorian blue dress and then there's, you know, some ballet dancer who's dressed up like a cat and he's doing a bunch of somersaults through the halls and, you know, we know that that's an artistic interpretation that's obviously not really going on, but it's Again, a reinforcement of these themes that are sort of brought up and then explored instead of just being thrown out there as eye candy or style over substance. I loved that this movie was able to capture both the style and substance, and we see that in a lot of these different little examples. Now, one of the things I will give you, Ryan, is that the movie kind of does become a little bit less focused at this point because we're kind of just getting different snippets of his life and sort of, uh, and then again, the people, the life of people around him. But I think that it sort of harkens to one important aspect of that film, which is it's, it's not a story based film. It's, it's very much an experiential film. It's about living the life of what this guy's going through and understanding the nature of this locked in condition and then seeing how his family is affected, you know? So we also get um, a couple really moving scenes with who just seems to have learned every language under the sun, Max von Sydow, who (laughs) seems to know Swedish and German and French and English. I'm pretty sure he knows that click, click Bush people voice. Uh, language like that. This guy's nuts, man. Like he, he can do anything and he crushes it, crushes everything, dude. Like he, he puts so much weight into that whole discussion where he's being shaved. And then later on, there's the scene where he tries to have the conversation over the phone using the girl as a translator and he just can't bring himself to do it. And he ends up breaking down and it's like, man, MVS is a hell of an actor, man. I got to go back and check out more of that dude's work because he crushes it every single time he shows up on on screen. This is uh this is our second Max von Sydow film, so let's just keep it going. Let's be a Max von Sydow podcast. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> our first is Wild Strawberries. Yeah, well, and I know you haven't seen uh, Seventh Seal, but he actually plays the lead in Seventh Seal. Um, so I mean, he's just, he's just everywhere, dude, and he always always delivers. I mean, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily a rangy actor, right? Like, I mean, he's always kind of got a general vibe that he brings, but it's always got weight and it's always a hell of a performance. And uh, like I said, I I would enjoy going back and and catching more of dude's work from, from back in the day. Okay, now, Ryan, there is also one other scene that I want to bring up. And it's funny because in a, in a movie that's filled with very emotional scenes and very emotional sequences. It was interesting that I found myself responding to this one as strongly as I did. So there's, after they sort of flash back to the sequence that you referred to with his girlfriend and Lords and, or Lourdes, however you say it. And they ended up breaking up after, you know, he buys her the flashing lady Madonna that she seems to really love. Uh, There's this scene where it's just, it's an, it's an orderly 
okay? And he's cradling Jean in his arms, and he's sort of floating him through this pool. I imagine it's sort of something to sort of keep his muscles from atrophying or whatever. And there was just something about the way that this orderly, like, looked... He, he looked as though he was, like, cradling his newborn son, and he had such genuine compassion in his face. And... Like, it just made me take a step back and remember that, like, there are people that literally do this shit, like, every single day, man, where they commit themselves to helping other people come out of these just horrible tragedies. Or maybe they were born into some sort of disability, you know? And it makes me think about all of the nurses and the orderlies and the healthcare workers that just selfishly dedicate themselves to bringing these people out of these really difficult physical and emotional and psychological situations. And like, I don't ever think, I don't think that I could ever bring myself to just literally dedicate my life to other people's. And I, I, I would like to think that I could, but I don't think I could. I hope maybe one I day mean, I can. Right. But you're married with a child. I hope you, I hope you uh, <laughs> <laughs> figure it out one day. Jason. Yeah, but that's different, dude. That's different because, like, that's, like, my family, dude. Like, these guys, like, these people are not, they're taking care of people that aren't their family. And you might you might think it's their job, dude, but, like, people people have so many different ways of making making money. No, and, and I get it. these people yeah. to just give themselves to everyone else, dude, it's, like, just hats off. And if anybody listening, if, if you are one of those people, if you're a healthcare worker, if you're a nurse, if you're a frontliner, like, I just I, I I have all the respect in the world for you, and I appreciate everything that you guys are doing out there to to dedicate yourselves to to helping people when you don't have to, especially the sexy ones, the sexy nurses is who <laughs> in, in in physical therapists is who we're here for. Uh, just letting you know, you're thank you very much for your service, sexy nurses. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, you know. Yeah, so, and and from there we sort of pivot to, you know, the the, the film's going to wrap up here very shortly. Um, and, and because, you know, this story is ultimately a tragedy, there's a lot of inspiration behind it, and there's a lot of beautiful positivity to take from it. But at the same time, Jean's story is a tragic one. So we get to this point where Jean's actually recovering pretty well, right? He started moving his head. He started moving his tongue a little bit. He can grunt, which a lot of the nurses, you know, uh, sing with him. And that's that's how he sings. And but then like right away, man, he develops pneumonia. And because of his condition, this pneumonia is going to prove fatal. And so we quickly learn that, you know, this dude is is uh, he doesn't have much time left. You know, he's going to be going pretty quick. But he finished his book and he got it out there. And so for our, our you know, pretty much penultimate scene. Um, well, so let me ask you this. The So there's right before the last scene where everyone's sort of saying their goodbyes, we get like a long flashback. Now, after about the first five, seven, ten minutes, I was a little worried about this scene because I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, why are we spending so much time with just going through a normal day of his at this stage of the movie? As it turns out, at the end of this shot, that's when we learn how he had his stroke and we learn that he was out driving with his kid and it just sort of happened it was a day yeah. like any other 
You know, it wasn't anything that he was doing. He did. He wasn't putting himself in danger. I mean, he was literally just, you know, going to or from his house with his kid. And it could have been anyone else on any other day, on any other road, in any other vehicle, right? I think that was kind of the point of that. I did think it was specifically interesting because most films would start there. And so I really thought it was an interesting way to essentially end the film. No, uh, and that just shows that, you know, yeah, and then it just goes to show that this is a film that took things, took a very different approach. You know, it gave us a a look at this story through a lens that we hadn't seen before. And that's ultimately why I think it's such an effective film. I think this scene, uh, though, how do I put this and not sound like a moron? Um, it was kind of weird that the stroke happened while he was talking at length to his uh, adolescent son about hair on his dick um, <laughs> and why that mattered and why that was happening. Like, uh, it would seem like uh, I understand it was like a bonding moment and, and maybe or maybe it was just the most French thing ever, uh, you know, to sit there and talk about hair on your son's dick. But kind of weird. Uh, and I think he even puts it that way. I'm like, man, I don't think I don't know. Yeah, that was kind of odd. <laughs> yeah, it was. But again, I think it was just sort of to show that it was like, oh, yeah, dude, it's just a, a normal day, right? His son's 12. You know, he's like, hey, you becoming a man yet? You know, maybe he does so crudely. But I also think that's probably in character, right? He seems like a brash. He seems like he'd be a very yeah. brash kind of guy. Right. Um. So, you know, so so I didn't really have any sort of problem with that. And then I did think that it was cool because, again, you know, it is a tragedy. He's going to die. But also we learned that. His book gets published to great acclaim and kind of like a kind of one of those things where he ended up dying 10 days after the book was published. And yep. so, you know, whether he was just hanging on long enough to see that through, who, who's to say, but it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. And uh, from there, you know, the movie pretty much ends with a uh, reverse of a montage of some glacier meltings that showed up earlier in the film and i don't know if maybe that's supposed to be like a you know earlier things came crashing down and now you know even in spite of this tragedy uh, things are being rebuilt or, or built back up so again ryan to me this was just uh i couldn't i can't say enough about how much i enjoyed maybe and maybe not always enjoyed but but i really enjoyed this movie and it was very it was very emotional and and i didn't think it was it was emotionally manipulative. You know, so many times when you watch movies like that, you know, it's like, you know, they just, it feels like a manufactured sadness, right? It's like, oh yeah, you know, you, 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 you killed this character. You've got the emotional swelling with the strings. And this was just sort of like a, a more creeping long-term sense of emotion. You know, it didn't, didn't try to jam any specific emotional scenes down your throat. It was just, it allowed each of these very small moments to accumulate over time. And I think yeah. that's ultimately what makes this film so successful. It's pretty, it's a pretty small film too. When you think about it, like there's nothing, uh, there, there's a lot of reasons to not be stoked about this film. As far as like nothing exciting happens, you're in the hospital. Most of the film, uh, you're doing like a uh, first person view for half. And then the other half, you're just kind of following characters coming in and uh, in and out of his room, checking on him, what's going on in his head. Um, if I were to describe this movie to a friend and then say, no, really, you're going to love it. Uh, I don't know how I could like jazz it up, you know, to talk someone into seeing it. But it's a good film. Uh, I have no reasons to not love this movie. Um, 
this is a favorite of a lot of people. It's just, um, I, I can't really describe why I love it, but I do love it for the reasons that you said, I guess, just because it's a, a little, you know, small emotional romp, but it really hits at the heart and really puts you in the shoes of, to your point, not only Jondo, but also everyone around him that cared for him, uh, even if those people were misrepresented, uh, <laughs> to my earlier point. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Ryan, why don't we go ahead and wrap this up like we do with our three adjectives. What do you have for me? Uh, I have claustrophobic. Um, mm. I, I, I kind of felt like the first part of the film really did put me in the shoes of Jean Doe and kind of made me feel. But even after you broke out, like I was just saying a second ago, it kind of you're still in the hospital and everything. You had a couple of beach days and they would wheel him out on the balcony from time to time. But uh yeah, I mean, it, it's it's Metallica's one uh, or smack my bitch up. <laughs> I'm sure Schnabel really appreciates that. Um, <laughs> I put art house uh, as my second word. Uh, this was okay. an art house film at its core. Uh, I felt. Uh, when I think of art house, uh, like you said, the light leaks uh, coming into the lens and the way that uh, they filmed it and, and uh, the sound design, uh, the way that we're trapped in his head. Um, I, I can't describe I, I can't say this enough either. Like that this is a movie that on paper should not be enjoyable. And yet uh, here we are <laughs> both loving this film um, and divisive. I had a bigger problem with the character choices than you did. I thought that that was mm. um, uh, kind of a douche move. Um, I thought that, the again, uh, like uh, exactly what you said, I think that some biopics have a reason to do that, and this did not. And those people are alive, and they went to go see this movie, and this is how they're going to be remembered as the... Uh, you know, the shitty mistress when she was there every day helping him along. And, you know, uh, now this is yeah. her, her legacy. Like these are real people that you're fucking with and their, their legacy and their memories. So, and the kids too, and, and everything, you know, uh, and then to glorify the, the mother of the child, let's look at the other side of that coin. You're glorifying a woman and showing her as a hero. Uh, uh look, man, I've had some ex-girlfriends and if I pass, don't you dare glorify a couple of them. Like there's a couple of them that need to be remembered for what they were, bro. Like <laughs> they weren't nice people. Uh, so, you know, it, I, I kind of had some problems with that. So I thought it was a little divisive too. Yeah. So anyway, those are my three years. That's fair. Yeah, no, dude, that's totally fair criticism. So for me, the first one I'm going to go with emotional, you know, it's not something I would, I don't, Typically describe myself as someone that enjoys, you know, these overly emotional experiences. We we saw that recently with uh, Seeking a Friend, as we know. So, uh, but yeah, man, the emotions in this one just worked for me. I think it was because they didn't hit you over the head and they allowed you to just sort of organically assimilate them. My next adjective, experiential. You know, this is not a movie that is Good one. going to be... You know, highly scrutinized from a story perspective, from a plot perspective. As, as you as you said, it's really ultimately a very small film. Like, in terms of the different story and character elements, there's not a ton going on. But it's all about just the visceral experience of yes. living this guy's reality, of being put in his head. And then to your point, as you mentioned as well, everyone else around him and their experience. 
And then my third adjective, we've got a one of a kind, which is one of those hyphenated uh, multiple words that's really more than one word, but we're just going to jam it together. And again, you know, for better or worse, whether you end up loving this film or hating it, I would say it's one of a kind. It's entirely unto itself. I've never seen a movie like it. And to my knowledge, you know, there's not a lot of movies that are out there. And who knows, maybe I'll come across something one day. But for right now, I can literally say I've never seen this movie before uh, told this way. I mean, I saw this movie once, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. So, um, uh, yeah, so I've got uh, emotional, experiential, and one of a kind. Ryan, slap a formal grade rating on it for me. What you got? Uh, I'm going to give this a B plus. Um, I thought this was a, a, a really good movie. Not a great movie. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. I don't have much bad to say. I just think that there are better films that we've talked about or that we have coming up. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't holy shit. Like there wasn't really anything that's it was just a solid, thorough B plus movie. 89 cool. Very cool. We'll give it 89. 89% B plus, like seeking a friend. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> All right. Well, so, uh, I mean, I don't know whether this is going to come as any surprise to you or not, but Ryan, Diving Bell and the Butterfly gets a full on five stars out of five from old wow. Jason Peters here. Wow. I couldn't find. I mean, again, you know, I know, I know you brought up the thing with, you know, the story elements and the characters. Again, even knowing it now, it's not enough to bump down my rating. I think this is a singular vision made from a passionate artist who really wanted to tell a story the right way, a unique way. It's a perfect marriage of storytelling device as uh, paired with the story itself, right? So every single stylistic decision that this film makes that lends itself to that sort of art house aesthetic that you're referring to is motivated by either story or character. And that's sure. so rare. And I really appreciate everything about this film. Full five stars. Standing by I, it. I, I support the fact that you're willing to go to bat and say that it doesn't have to be a big film to be a perfect film. And that yeah. you can have a, you know, a, a, a modest story, but as long as it's done perfectly you're willing to give it an a plus and i respect the shit out of that jason tight work but <laughs> seriously i seriously. appreciate it buddy yeah no no no, no, no I, mean I know yeah no no i appreciate it i appreciate I feel it a little sure. self-conscious and i mean about and my that, that very much <laughs> no and that very much trends with the only other film that i've given a five and your only a plus was the lighthouse and so that very much okay. backs that up because again the lighthouse was by no means a huge epic right so yep i think it says something about you know what we what we like and what we're looking for. And that's ultimately just a singular vision, right? Like I'll listen to you tell any damn story in the world as long as it's entertaining and an entertaining story can look like, you know, some crazy sci-fi comedy with, you know, aliens with thumbs for butts or whatever, right? Just whatever silly thing you can come up with. Right. But it can also be a really moving story about a tender relationship or about an elderly couple coming to terms with, what their life is now. I mean, there's, there's any story under the sun can be told effectively and appreciated as long as it's not called wild strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> so with that uh, yeah. guys, with that guys, we're going to go ahead and uh, take a first commercial break here. 
Stick around. We'll be right back to talk some Dr. Sleep. From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a new kind of anthology unlike anything else on the market. Aberrant Tales. Edited by Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales takes the very best stories in modern science fiction, fantasy, and horror and combines them into one unique anthology you won't be able to put down. John Cesarelli says, Aberrant Tales starts off with a bang and ends with quite the double whammy. Nick McCulker remarks, Aberrant Tales is fantastic. If you like shows like Black Mirror, this is right up your alley. And Michael Sabold exclaims, Aberrant Tales is perfect, well-written and reminiscent of The Twilight Zone. I couldn't recommend this collection more. Read the book that has everyone talking. Aberrant Tales, available in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that live there. They come back. Not many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something. <gasps> I'm running away from myself, I guess. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These are the devils. They'll eat what hands. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow. Hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. Where are we going? There's a place. I'm ready. Yes, you run, dear. And then I will find you. And you will scream for years. Come play with us forever and ever. Welcome back to Esoterica Cinema. That was the trailer for our next film, Dr. Sleep. Ryan, hit our listeners up with a description. Jason, this is the sequel to uh, 1980s The Shinnin', as The Simpsons would call it. Uh, (laughs) Struggling with alcoholism, old Danny Torrance, Danny Tease, uh, remains traumatized by the sinister events that occurred at the Overlook Hotel when he was just a child. His hope for a peaceful existence soon becomes shattered when he meets Abra, 
a teen who sha- uh, shares his extra sensory gift of the shine. Together, they form an unlikely alliance to battle the True Knot, a cult whose members try to feed off the shine of innocence to become immortal. Jason, what'd you think about this movie? I actually really dug it, man. I uh, wasn't 100% sure what to expect from it, but... And look, the first thing we should acknowledge is this is a very different film from The Shining. I had actually read the book, both The Shining and Doctor Sleep, and the book itself is very different from both the book and the movie, which the two... Well, the book and the movie version of The Shining are very different as well. This movie matches the book very well. Um, but yeah, sorry. That was probably a little confusing. I probably, no one knows what the hell I'm talking about now. I don't even know if I know what I'm talking about. I certainly don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I did dig it. Um, and even when I read the book, Dr. Sleep, I did feel like it would probably make for a better movie than book. And that certainly ended up being the case here. What'd you think, man? Yeah. Um, this movie laid up and made par. Um, uh, admittedly, okay. Stanley Kubrick is a tough act to follow. Um, sure. You know, uh, that's just a classic film. Um, here's the thing too. Uh, I feel like this, uh, so you having read both books, um, I was always, my problem with this shining is more about the rules of the movie itself. Um, this is a tough one for me because I love that movie so much. It's, you know, it's such a part of our culture. It's seen as a horror Mm -hmm. film or a suspense thriller. Um, but I I thought as a narrative, that movie, uh, the original, The Shining, not Dr. Sleep, uh, was kind of all over Mm -hmm. the place. And this kind of cleared some things up for me as far as what The Shining was, The Shine, and, um... Because in the original film with Kubrick, you've got the Overlook Hotel and everything that is happening to Jack uh, Torrance, uh, the father played by Jack Nicholson. And um, so everything that's going on with that and the party and all the dead people that he keeps seeing and all of that. But you also have Danny Torrance with his shine and the red rum and him being able to, you know, see dead people and so forth and communicate into the afterlife. So there, there was kind of these two things going on that I didn't understand in the original film, like what I should be paying attention, more attention to, or what was causing the problem or even what these two things had to do with each other. Was it that Danny Torrance was there um, in the overlook, which brought these spirits out because of his shine. And that caused those spirits to torment his father, Jack, or what? Could you clear that up for me? It's been a while since I've seen yeah. that movie. Well, and and part of that is, I think, by design. And that's sort of the Kubrick influence. Obviously, with films like 2001, Kubrick has demonstrated that he's not averse to, you know, going with ambiguity and symbolism and not putting everything out there for you to see. The book, The Shining, really lays all of that out very clearly. I think that... Whether it was because Kubrick had some sort of problem with the source material or whether he wanted to make something that was intentionally more obscure and ambiguous and not right there for you to know. that That's not your – it's nothing with you, buddy. Okay. That's everything with Kubrick. Okay? okay. Like he intentionally made like made a point not to put all that information in The Shining. So the information that I'm going to give you really actually comes from the book. Well, that's why I'm asking. More so than the movie. Right. I would expect yeah, Stephen so, King to know – 
what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So, and basically, yeah. So what it is, is it's like, there is this sort of spirit to the house. Like think of the house as sort of like a living the house, meaning the overlook entity, hotel. right? The overlook hotel. Yeah. Yes, of course the hotel. Sorry. Um, and yeah, so it's sort of like a sentient being of, of sorts and it's drawn to the power of certain people, uh, which is they sort of have an exaggerated life force or life energy that calls out. And it's sort of one of these classic ideas of like good versus darkness. Right. So Danny basically has a very powerful shine, unlike pretty much any other person out there. The hotel feeds off of this shine and this energy and it basically wants to inhabit Danny so that it can use Danny's life force to bring itself back to life and so when we see some of these scenes where uh there's like the party and there's the different people that are attending the ball and you know Lloyd it's basically sort of like feeding off of Danny's shine to make those things come to life, but it wants to inhabit him completely so that it can sort of like use his, him as an almost like eternal battery and then absorb him. And, you know, that's sort of in the movie, they end up doing a, that a little bit with Jack. Also, interestingly about the book, it really focuses a lot more on Jack Torrance's alcoholism. Okay. Which I think just, which I think justifies him a bit more as a character and makes him slightly more sympathetic. I mean, he's still an asshole, but like I actually rewatched The Shining recently after watching Doctor Sleep and I forgot like Jack's a really bad dad and a really bad husband. You know, I I, I remembered that, but I forgot to what degree. Like he just starts out the movie hate just being so intensely annoyed by his wife and kid. And when you remove that heavy alcoholism aspect of it because in the book he's basically white knuckling sobriety and he's like like a handful of months deep so every single thing that anybody says let alone his wife and kid is going to piss him off and has nothing to do with that and everything to do with his alcoholism so when you remove that and you make it more like he's just a frustrated writer that hates his wife and kid it definitely makes him less sympathetic so it was just kind of interesting, the decisions that Kubrick made in The Shining. I think a lot of them actually worked against the film and the story. I do kind of understand why Stephen King was a little bit upset sure. about the decisions that were made. But at the same time, books and movies are two very different disciplines. You know, you can't really look at one through the lens of another. And The Shining is a great movie. I love it to death. It's got problems. It's probably Kubrick's least well-made film in a lot of respects. I do think the way that he chose to direct the actors, having them do take after take after take, ultimately led to a disjointed performance. I'll say this, too, because it came up. I think Shelley Duvall gets way too much shit for that movie. She's really not bad in that movie. She's Shelley Duvall is never going to win an Oscar, right? She's not an Oscar-winning actress, but she she does the character she does very well, and I think she does it about probably as well as she can, which is totally solid, and I don't understand why she was nominated for a Razzie and why people continue to talk shit about her performance in the movie. Honestly, I didn't know she was nominated for a Razzie. This is all news to me, so... Yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't I like I, I get. And and honestly, when you watch Jack Nicholson again, because I was actually laughing about this, like nobody thinks about the poor editor 
that received the dailies from The Shining. And Kubrick's like, okay, I've got 32 takes of this one, and I've got 64 (laughs) takes of this one, and you just go through them all and pick the best ones and make sure that they flow really well one into the other, okay? Like, dude, come on. So when you watch it and you're watching this super disjointed performance where Jack's going various lengths of crazy and you know sometimes he's at like a a six and sometimes he's at a 12 and it's just uh, again like it really i don't know that that was the best choice to to in terms of directing these actors in this film so but anyways ryan let's go ahead and get to actual dr sleep yeah yeah yeah. i I didn't mean to get off on the shining for it it is you have to admit though it is hard to talk about this without at least addressing its predecessor and uh this one got me thinking a little bit about the rules of the game um, of The Shining itself, not the movie, but the actual powers that's, uh, that Danny Torrance has and other characters have like Abra and um, and what the Overlook, the relationship of the hotel has to do with that and how that plays. Because all those things get reintroduced in this film and we're going to discuss it. So um, I'll let you go ahead and, uh, and get us in. I will say that this movie starts in Florida in 1980 and nothing good Starts in Florida in 1980, so you know you're in for some shit. Every movie uh, that starts in Florida in 1980, I don't care what it is, um, ends in usually a lot of cocaine, uh, some (laughs) shenanigans that go along with it, and federal prison time or ultimate death. So, uh, anyways... Well, the it does start in Florida, and, and we do get some cocaine pretty quickly early on. So I guess this is halfway there, right? Yeah, uh, when, accurate. <laughs> the movie <laughs> the movie starts with a nice opening shot. We do get that sort of classic synth driven soundtrack from the original Shining that they reuse here. Takes us right back there. There's a really nicely lit overhead shot of the trees, and we get to do this sort of deep push in. And it's a really long zoom, and eventually we see this girl sort of picking flowers. Like you said, Ryan, we're in Florida. It's 1980. This girl's approached by a woman in a hat. We, She's our main protagonist, appropriately named Rose the Hat. And, you know, she speaks in a very sort of unnerving fashion. It's a little protracted, the scene. And then all of a sudden the cohorts sort of jump out around and advance on the girl. Now, <laughs> the funny thing is from there, Ryan, because we've talked about this before, I started laughing because the next scene, it starts chapter one. And now anytime a movie has chapter titles, I immediately hear you going like, oh, man, we're in for a long one. <laughs> Dude, I actually have in my notes here. Chapter one dash Solaris question mark. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and, and I mean, this was no, it wasn't a short jaunt, dude. It was a solid three hours. I mean, we both watched the director's cut. And so, but I also didn't think there was really too much fat on there. I thought they did a good job of keeping it moving. Yeah. Despite its run length, I didn't really find myself bored or anything like that. So, yeah. And um, there were multiple chapters. My problem with Solaris wasn't the part one, part two situation. It was that it took like two hours to get to part two. And that was so disheartening because then it's like, how many, number one, how many parts are there? And then how how long have I been watching this film? It, it was kind of disorienting. <laughs> Where this one kind of like uh, it did have a to your point, there was um, uh, a brisker pace. Uh, there wasn't a lot of fat in this film. And you and I watched the director's cut, which was a full blown three hours long plus. Yeah, I think the uh, the theatrical cuts two and a half, so it's got a half an extra half hour in there. And it's interesting because I didn't really 
Like we said, we watched the director's cut full three hours. Wasn't much fat, so I wonder what they took out. Yeah, because yeah, same. It didn't really seem like there was a lot that they could really, certainly not a half hour to take out. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure they made it work, but. Yeah, I'd be curious. Yeah, same. So, but uh, yeah, so chapter one starts, you know, it immediately brings us back to the hotel. They recreate the tracking shot of Danny on his tricycle going through room 237 hangs open. You know, the old dead, naked dead woman's in there looking creepy. And then we jump back to the house where. Danny's living with Wendy, his mom, and they're still young, but they're also played convincingly by new actors that do a good job of looking like the old actors. And we find that the haunting or what have you of Room 237 has followed Danny back to his house. The The naked dead woman in the bathtub is actually in his bathtub. And... One of the things that I did like, Ryan, so immediately when Danny's sort of going into the bathtub, they recreate the original in terms of, you know, relative to the atmosphere and location that he's in. So, you know, in the hallway shot, we've got Danny front and center. He's not on a tricycle, but he's walking. We've got, you know, the sort of similar geometry that Kubrick sort of uses and, uh, The door opens and, you know, very slowly the woman pulls it back, the dead woman. So I sort of liked the comparisons to the film, the original film that is. Right. And no uh, crazy uh, fuzzy bears given fellatio, which I'm okay with. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone that's seen the original Shining, that's always a scene that sticks out to everyone. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of those WTF moments where it's just like, what? Because it's like some old dude and a just a guy in a bear costume just like looks up hey, or whatever. I mean, yeah. after seeing <laughs> after seeing Sweetbacks, I know how people used to get down. I know how. People- <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly, that scene is not in the book, so I think that was a that was a Kubrick original. Oh, and by the way, speaking of what's not in the book, uh, you may or may not know, but like the. Uh, the whole elevator with blood is not in the book at all. That's a that's totally a Kubrick visual. Interesting. Yeah, I was waiting the whole book for it, and I was like, "Where's the blood?" And it wasn't there. It was nice to see that creepy old woman in the uh, in the bathtub, though. And and I do yeah. I agree with you. I think the uh, the director here did a pretty bang up job of the winks and nods to the original um, without beating you over the head with it. Until the very end where they revisit the Overlook Hotel when it becomes necessary. Um, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, that creepy old woman, though, had uh, the black spots all over her. And it, it just yeah. reminded me of uh, when white people put raisins in their potato salad. And I was like, man, <laughs> it looks like raisins. Wouldn't that be funny if that's how, actually how the backstory of how that woman died? Like she just choked on some bad potato salad. <laughs> well, we all should have learned. <laughs> and then she has those bruises there as like a, as a reminder, some sort of visual <laughs> metaphor there. Right. That's the <laughs> that's our that's our uh, behind the scenes trivia for everybody at home. That's. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and then we go and find <laughs> out that uh, old Danny Torrance is having a having a go in life. He's not doing so hot, and uh, he's a bit of a drunken mess. Um, like he's true. Well, but Ryan, before before we go there oh, though, yeah, real yeah. quick, because this is this is a this is an important conceit that they, they introduced, yeah, real yeah, quick, yeah. just because it is going to come at the end. Is just the notion of like so when when he can when Danny as a kid confronts the old woman 
uh, he has that scene with Dick Halloran, which is the old uh, Scatman Crothers character, the the black dude from the yeah, original, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that also has The Shining. And he introduces Danny to the notion of these boxes or these chests as a way to deal with a lot of the horrors that he had experienced in the hotel. And so basically he, being Danny, after advice from Dick, comes up with a series of, of chests in his mind, sort of like a mind chess. And he's able to psychically take the evil in the form of the old woman and lock her up in this chest. And that's how he is able to sort of move on from it. And he would he ended up basically taking all of these different traumatic characters that were haunting him and locking him up in these chests. And again, that's going to come up in the end of the film. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Yep. To your point. Yes. Uh, it's 2011 and uh, we're in Jersey Danny, like you said, not doing so hot. Uh, he wakes up naked next to a girl in a pool of vomit. And we get some quick scenes of, you know, the night before. He's getting drunk. He's getting in bar fights. They go hook up a bunch of blow. You know, and then uh, when he wakes up the next morning, she's passed out. He's getting dressed. Goes to steal her money. And uh, as he does, he also sees a baby stroll out. And then, you know, he, instead of putting the money back, you know, he just goes to put the baby next to her, keeps the money. A psychic projection of Dick Halloran comes back again, tries to convince him not to, but he's like, meh, going to take it anyway. And he does. <laughs> <laughs> From there, we're introduced to... We also to, got... Uh, uh, that that uh, whole scene kind of felt very train spotting y to me, too. It's like Ewan McGregor, he's like puking in the toilet, stealing money, you got a kid coming <laughs> out. I'm like, man, is this kid going to like crawl on the ceiling in a minute? Wait for it. yeah that'd be funny if this movie was actually just nothing but a series of references to older movies yeah and then i'm also like shining and train spotting and this that the other (laughs) i'm also watching this scene thinking yep that's dating in your 30s and 40s (laughs) (laughs) oh to be single (laughs) ah yes yes oh she's got Uh, a kid shit she didn't mention that last night well let's just uh (laughs) put him in the bed of vomit take the money uber home we're good ah yes uh i've i've uh i've been been married slash together for some time so thanks tinder uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) but live it up buddy wake up into numerous piles of vomit for me okay Uh, i just gotta start building chess (laughs) i does demons away yeah from there we're introduced to this uh this abra chick if you will uh she's a young uh, young girl she lives in new hampshire and she's something of a prodigy we see her sort of playing piano, but then record scratch, see the piano playing itself as well. And uh, from there, we're also introduced to another character. She's a teenage girl in Long Island, and she's in a theater, and she hypnotizes this man who we soon find out is a child predator that was, you know, doing that like to catch predator thing where he tries to lure some girl in the theater and take advantage of her. She ends up hypnotizing her with some sort of magic spell something like that he falls asleep she steals his wallet and then proceeds to carve markings into his cheek so that he has to explain it to his wife and has like a a visual reminder of his actions so carry around with him so pause right there so uh did did that um did, did the 15 year old girl in the theater uh, did she have the shine? Is that what she was using to hypnotize and everything? She had uh, a similar magic power situation, or what? What's your what was your take on that? Or do you think that was something completely unrelated and supernatural that was going on? Yeah, I think it was something. I think it's 
how to put it, almost sort of like a shine mutation, if you will, or something like that, right? I think that the shine sort of manifested itself differently in her because she specifically had a power that other people didn't, right? Whereas a persuasion Rose or could sort of or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So Rose could kind of sort of like astral travel, and you know, Abra had Abra could do the same. And then, you know, Danny can see what's going to happen. And then, yeah, this one had this sort of power of persuasion. It's like, uh, I don't know, did you ever watch, do you watch Umbrella Academy at all? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen that? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like, it was basically like the uh, the whisper chick, you know, like, or uh, or I heard a rumor chick or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, just power suggestion. And then that person basically can't help but do it. So after so, having read both books, is it your take on this film that, and just the overall arcing, the overarching story from Stephen King, that the, the shine can manifest itself in different ways and different people, kind of like uh, X-Men mutations? Honestly, I think it was kind of just a convenient thing that they didn't really put a whole lot into. I'll be completely honest because it's not consistent. Okay. I mean, there's not really any other character that's like her, and everyone else's shine is pretty consistent. So I, I think it was just kind of one of those things where they wanted to have this character, and so they're just kind of like, yeah, you know, she's got to shine. What kind of shine? I don't know. Different kind of shine, but it's there. Well, and, uh, Don't ask too many questions. Let's go. And here, in, having not read either book, Herein lies the problem with with both of these films for me is just that I never know at any given moment what the rules are or what I'm dealing with yeah. or who I'm dealing with and what their limitations are, what their weak spots are. Um, not that I need to know necessarily, but uh, uh, this whole movie of Dr. Sleep kind of unravels uh, in that way, just in the sense that um, our antagonist that we're going to get to next um, who are watching our 15-year-old in the theater and, and about to prey on her uh, and incorporate her into their cult. Uh, I never really knew like what their role was either as far as where they came from or what their backstory was. I don't need to know everything and have it all spelled out, but it sure would be nice to know a little bit of the rules of the game. Like, Did they have the shine? Is that another? Or again, is it a completely unrelated supernatural situation, this cult that we're going to get into? I'll let you kind of introduce that, and then as you do... Take my question into consideration. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, dude. Absolutely. And then and those are totally fair questions slash criticisms. I have so many we'll see, questions. We'll see how those <laughs> We'll see how these turn out. So like you say, Rose and Rose the Hat, that is, and then she's got this guy who's pretty much like her number two. His name's Crow. He does a lot of her bidding. And they're basically watching her, her being the the young teenager with the power of suggestion, and want to recruit her to some sort of whatever that they have. We haven't been introduced to it yet. We go back to Abra. She's having a birthday party. The you know she's kind of interrupting the magician, saying, "Oh, I could do the stuff that you're doing," and he's kind of annoyed, like, "Yeah, kid, whatever." And then after the party's over, with mom and dad watching, she basically makes all the spoons you know st- uh, stick from the ceiling. And they're kind of rightfully afraid, and she makes them come crashing down, runs away. And then we sort of bounce back, chapter two begins, and that's where we get introduced to the actual cult that Rose leads. The cult is called the True Knot. Now, here's the thing about them. In terms of motivation, I don't necessarily know that they have one. It's Just unlike other sort of... Yeah, I mean, they're basically now. Here's here's what's what's kind of interesting. I don't know if this occurred to you at all, but the way that these people are set up is they sort of have some sort of shining ability, right? Especially Rose's is super strong, but for the most part, 
really the closest thing that you can say about them is they kind of follow vampire rules. Right. When it comes down to it at the end of the day. But instead of feeding on blood, they're feeding on people's life force, which I guess is kind of like their soul as well, so to speak. Yeah. And so, you know, the more that a person shines and the younger they are, the more that soul is pure and the more potent the smoke is that they're going to feed off of. So they kind of follow, I guess, in the same respect that, like, you know, you with with vampire mythology, you know, you do have something with, you know, Count Dracula and some of those other main characters, Nosferatu, etc., but a lot of the vampires, they kind of just survive. Like, they're cons- it's almost animalistic, you know? They basically just want to uh, feed and fuck, basically, you know? And I guess, I guess these guys are kind of not dissimilar from that in that respect. They just kind of travel around looking for specific types of food that they can feed off of because they have a lot of people to feed and, you know, older people and people that don't shine, like they do have some smoke, some life energy, but it's not really enough to go around. So they have to find these sort of very pure targets, sort of white whales, if you will, that they can feed off of for a while. And they basically harness their life energy in these canisters uh, that they bust out every now and then when they need to feed. Yeah, so they they bottle the life essence of certain people. If I guess if they don't need it right then to feed, they've been able to have a surplus of this life force, which they contain in these special containment units, and they can breathe in as necessary when they're low on food. I guess because they're shown to uh, the 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 members of the cult go to Rose and they ask her to break one out because they're all starving. Yeah, And she's like, no, no, we got to save it. I'm going to find us some food. And she's like, all right, fine. She goes and busts one out, and they all huff it. And, uh, you know, then they're feeling good again. It makes them all young again. So uh, in the same way as vampires, it keeps them young, it seems, as well. She even tells the 15-year-old character that she's going to live for a really long time. They're going to turn her. Um, Something that... I didn't understand was, I guess they found a value in their, uh, I, I forget the 15-year-old's name. I'm going to have to look it up. Is it um, Andy, Snakebite Andy? Um, so uh, Andy, uh, and so I'm not just calling her the 15-year-old the whole time. So my, my question is, Snakebite <laughs> Andy, they, they um, did they see a value in her because of her hypnotization powers to persuade people to get in the van that they could you know, uh, pick up little kids and stuff like that on the side of the road, like we see with the baseball boy? Or, like, why didn't they feed off of her? Because they were obviously starving. I guess they, and, and why would they share their food with another with another mouth? Thoughts? Yeah, well, and they had actually brought that up. I think one of the, it was basically brought up by one of the other members of the cult, and with every person that they bring on, it's sort of like a decision. Is it worth feeding off of them or would they have more long-term value in helping them, you know, get more people or whatever it is? And I think that, yeah, so with, you know, with her having this particularly special ability, it's like, well, we could kill her, but she can also do a lot more for us by keeping her alive. Uh, So that's what, you know, let's just convince her, bring her into the squad, and then she can help us go get some more people. So, which doesn't necessarily work out that way. Plus, old man Gramps was on his way out, so they probably saw an opening in the clan. They're like, yeah, we're going to have an opening pretty soon. Gramps is on his way out. Let's go ahead and uh, <laughs> get some fresh blood in here. 
Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we come back to Danny, he's actually finds himself in New Hampshire as well. And he's kind of established as a drifter. He ends up in this little odd town replica called Teeny Town. It's not really something that's too explored in the movie. It does actually have a larger place in the book. But either way, he does find the groundskeeper of the place who recognizes him as a sort of fellow alcoholic and uh, struggling person. So the groundskeeper, this guy, Billy, I believe is his name, uh, he kind of takes him under his wing a little bit. He pays for him to put himself up at a local hostel or hotel for a couple of weeks while he figures things out, get on his feet, and uh, ends up you know, also getting him to go to AA a little later, which is going to kind of be the uh, turning point for for Billy. So one, one thing I did uh, think was great, I, I don't know if you it caught this as well, I'm sure you did, but when, uh, so Billy does take Danny to this first AA meeting, like I said, and the pastor who's running it uh, talks to him and he ends up sort of interviewing him for a job. Did you notice that the room that he interviewed him in was the same room that the guy interviewed Jack Torrance in, in The Shining, for the job? I did. I did. <laughs> I had to look it up to make sure that I wasn't going crazy. I was Because, again, I haven't seen The Shining in a long time, but I've seen it a million times. So I was like, wait a minute, is that? Because, you know, I was expecting some winks and nods, and we already saw the old lady in the tub and all of that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was a part of me that was waiting for little tips of the hat, and that was one of them. Yeah, and it, and it was a fun one, and again, you know, I do think it's something that the movie works in enough, but doesn't, like, necessarily rely on too heavily, you know? Uh, it just, it, it totally exists on its own, and whether or not you recognize those moments for what they are, it still works, so I did I did dig that in general about this film. From there, he does end up taking that job that he's offered, and he's working in hospice. And he actually very quickly establishes a reputation and becomes known as, wait for it, Dr. Sleep. It's where we get the name of the movie and book from. They call him Dr. Sleep because he basically visits patients right before they're about to die in the uh, hospital that he works in, or the hospice rather, excuse me. And basically sort of mentally projects some positive feelings, thoughts, emotions, what have you so that people, as they're passing, can go in peace. And there's also a little wrinkle where there's this cat, I believe it's Azalea or Azaria, something like that, uh, where that can tell when the patients are about to pass on. And so it, it you know, it'll just go in and, and jump on top, and then people kind of, because of the reputation, now people know that when the cat shows Man, up, it's their yeah. time to pass. So That was an, ad- that was an adorable, uh, you know, adorable way to go Uh (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and an adorable cat man i i love cats yeah i just was thinking about the verse uh in the bible i think it goes something about a rider on a pale horse and his name was death and it was this white cat and i'm like man what if that's the rider on the pale horse that that he saw it's it's this adorable little fluffy kid (laughs) (laughs) we're expecting this uh terrible cataclysmic event and nope that's awesome dude um, yeah, so, you know, so, so we, we get that established out of the way. Then Danny goes back home. All of a sudden he finds the word hello written on the wall. And so that kind of sets up our next chapter, chapter three, which chapter three actually starts with some really cool shots of like the overlook, but it's sort of like decayed and decrepit. And I really, I, I really dug those shots. It's just, and I don't know, by the way too, but 
This was actually one of the one of the few movies where like you could absolutely tell it was shot in digital, but it still didn't necessarily look bad. There was just something about the look to it um, where it was a little different, but they were still able to get like really really good shots and some really good cinematography. Kind of reminded me of The Lobster a little bit, which was another one where you could just kind of like tell it was digital, but it didn't look like, you know, 15 years ago when I went to film school digital or anything. Like, it's really come a long way. And I thought they, they were able to, again, get some really strong cinematography. Um, and, uh, yeah, so from there... Again, cool shots. Supposedly, on that note, um, I read, I don't know how much truth there is in this, but I read online uh, in some trivia blogs about this film that uh, they actually used a lot of the old footage from Kubrick's, Kubrick's film of The Overlook and uh, and digged it up with some snow and made it look all worn and weathered and shit. So, uh, you know, all the, the driving scenes up oh, there, wow. they did day for night and they... Uh, uh, they use some of the day scenes from the opening of The Shining, uh, the helicopter shots, and uh, digi them up with some snow and all of that. So to your point, you're actually spot on that uh, they actually did look very similar to our Kubrick Overlook shots, but uh, just a little digital cleanup there. Very cool, man. Very cool. Yeah. So and then after we get those shots, we kind of uh, bounce back to uh, Danny. It's eight years later and he's uh, sober now. He's accepting his eight year sobriety chip. And he's talking about how he sort of, you know, understands his dad a lot more, but there's still obviously a lot of pain there. And at the same time, you know, we jump back to Rose, who's out with the true knot. Crow approaches her, says, hey, you know, we're getting weak. You know, we got to feed. We got to find something. Rose is like, ah, no, no, we're cool. We got plenty of gas. And so she ends up busting out a canister. But shortly after that is when they're going to introduce the notion of the kid. This uh, the kid who obviously has the shining to a strong degree, and he's parlaying that into a successful play as a uh, baseball player in, in like a little league. And so he's like the little league star and the knot recognizes very quickly that this kid obviously has a shine to him and uh, they're going to go ahead and kidnap him very quickly. And then, you know, there's kind of a. It could have been a lot worse, but there's basically kind of a brutal scene where they kind of basically just torture this kid. And uh, yeah, that was hard to watch. Yeah. And so the idea is that, again, you know, because children are more pure, they have a stronger life essence. And I'm sure just as a device to kind of, you know, make things a little bit more squeamish. um, They also say that the more fear and, and, and pain you can inflict on somebody before and as they're dying that basically enriches that smoke as well and creates more of it. So they're encouraged to, you know, basically torture the, you know, these kids and these other people as they're consuming them. So, um, but you know, the director does handles it smartly in that he doesn't, you know, get right in there and show you the kids guts, guts getting ripped out. Right. You know, I mean, he pretty much just keeps it to, you know, facial reactions and, you know, the occasional sort of medium or wide shot where you can't really see too much. And, of course, the screams make it pretty brutal. But, uh, uh, you know, again, it was a – for for a scene that could have been a lot – like Eli Roth would have handled that in just oh, yeah. a way worse manner, right? He would have like, oh, yeah, I'm going to show you – you know, we're going to we're <laughs> just use your imagination, right? But no, he, yeah, he it was just the there. screams and, and the look on the kid's face. They didn't really get too gory with it per se. Um, but they, they left it a lot, a lot up to the viewer's imagination, but, uh, I did, I, I hated that scene just cause it did make me a little squeamish watching, uh, 
you know, a child to get tortured in that way. But uh, but I think that it was handled handled very well by the director in so much as they left it up to you. So maybe that's on me. Maybe I'm fucked up. Thanks. <laughs> and they turned this kid into a human vape pen and they're all just, yeah. you know, and huffing the smoke and everything. Um, I, I thought, you know, <laughs> I, the, the whole, again, the, this whole thing with the, like the pseudo vampire, they're just kind of riding this line of, of vampire vampirism, which has been done, but they're like, hold on, let's make it worse. Um, and then they're inhaling the smoke, but it's really just vampire v- vampirism. Is that a word? Vampirism? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah, sure. Vampirism? Okay. I think it's, yeah, vampirism. We'll go with that. They're vampires. <laughs> I'm sure there's a strong vampire contingent out there that actually listens to us, and they're going to have some strongly worded letters headed our way for not showing this the proper amount of respect. Yeah. Yeah, it's like emo versus goth, you know, that there's a... The 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 subcontingents yeah, exactly. uh, on Reddit, whatever. Uh, this is uh, kind of like that, but the ones. This is like vampires that vape. Uh, they're they're yeah. Like <laughs> We're gonna discover there's actually a huge difference between the vampire subculture and the uh, vampire subculture we go. with a Y. Two very distinctly different. Uh, imagine crowds, my surprise Ryan. when all four of our listeners are vampires and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, our our listeners expect a certain amount of vampire wokeness, okay? All right. So we've got to be sensitive and respectable. I, respectful. I will do my best, and my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, one of the other things I thought was kind of funny because it, it reminded me of a cure for wellness, but when it, when it came to Rose's accent, did you have a little bit of a Dr. Vollmer thing too going with that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so she's actually... Uh, Swedish and uh, and British, I think. So her her accent's a little mixed up just naturally. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. She definitely yeah, was Rebecca Ferguson. The... She's on. uh she's the 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 beautiful talent uh, in uh, Ilsa, I believe, in all the Mission Impossible movies mm. um, with Tom Cruise. So uh, yeah, we like Rebecca Ferguson, but yeah, her accent was a little inconsistent in this one. I didn't really know what to, where to where to take that. Yeah, at times it was British, at times it was American, and uh, it definitely just – she was indiscriminate about which one she wanted to bring up at any given time. So <laughs> just had to get that out of the way there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so from there, Abra has this vision of them feeding on this boy, you know, and obviously that's very traumatic to her. So we we jump back to her. She's, you know, it's eight years later, so she's now a adolescent, you know, probably 15-ish or so, 16, something like that. And I thought it was really interesting the way that they did the next scene. So it's like we actually got a little bit metaphysical there for a minute, you know. Uh, so there's the scene where, like, you know, basically once Abra kind of sees this, what's going on um, shortly thereafter, she basically like gets picked up. It's sort of like her. It's like a GPS thing. And like her and Rose's signals get linked up. So Abra's like sees that she's in this grocery store or whatever. And there's this cool scene where like her room flips over and then her body ends up sort of like floating out of the window. And she ends up flying over to this like grocery store where Rose the hat is. And then she's like, the Rose the Hat like notices her energy and like approaches one of like the frozen food sections and like reaches through the glass into Abra's room who then like screams and breaks the glass and sends her like blowing back and 
Rose the Hat soon realizes that, like, oh, this is, like, what they call a looker, right? Like, it's it's basically just someone with a shine that can, like, look in on a sort of astral projection level from, from great distances. And because she's so far away, she knows that she's so far away that she has to be, like, super powerful. And that if they were to get her body and her life essence, that they could feed off of it for a very, very long time, right? So... In essence, Rose decides at that moment that she has to have Abra, and she makes the determination that her and the Knot are going to hunt her. Now, what's interesting is at the same time, Abra essentially has the same realization about Rose in a backwards way, where she realizes that Rose and the Knot are actually very dangerous, and that, you know, her having this incredible shine and she's very powerful... If she were to connect with Danny, who she's been continuing to sort of message with on the wall back and forth about various things, that, you know, the two of them could sort of join forces and take care of Rose and the Knot, who they recognize are a great danger. I actually do have a clip of the moment where Abra hunts down Danny. Let's go ahead and listen to that one. You can hear me. Let's use our outside voices, all right? You tracked me down? It was easier than I thought. Like GPS, but in my head. Look, I don't mean any offense, but this day and age, a grown man sitting with a teenage girl on a park bench. I'm Aberstone, and if anyone asks, you're my uncle, Uncle Dan. And that's not even a lie, not totally. You're magic, like me. I don't know about magic. I... I always called it The Shining. And yeah, we both shine. Do your parents know? About my shine? They don't talk about it. Or if I use it, they look at me different. When I was a kid, I didn't understand The Shining. I called it Tony. I thought he was my imaginary friend. I thought you were my imaginary friend for a long time. How many of us are out there? There's a lot of people who have a little bit of shine. They don't even know it. They always seem to come home with flowers when their wives are sad or they do well in a school test they didn't study for. But I only met two or three people in my whole life who knew they shined. So a nice little exchange between those two. You know, they find out very quickly. They have a sort of natural rapport. I did like the chemistry, actually, that the two actors had. And it's funny because Ewan McGregor isn't exactly someone who often does a great job. And maybe this is just me, Ryan. I actually want to ask you. But, like, my opinion of Ewan McGregor, and you can tell me yours here in just a minute, is, like, he's always fine to good. And he's never horrible and he's never great. Like, he exists in this, like... Five to seven, six and a half range. How do you feel about Ewan McGregor? Yes, and he always finds himself in pretty stellar films overall. I've enjoyed his performances, but not necessarily because of him. Yeah, <laughs> but he's, he's charming. I think that's his gift. I think he's uh, that's his shine. Uh, <laughs> is that he's, a, he's a charming fella, and he's got a million-dollar smile. He seems likable. Um, you know, he could play tragic well enough. Um, but you're right. He's just kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like well enough is actually a perfect descriptor. 
Like you can say, yeah. how was his performance in X? And the answer is always going to be well enough. Well enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because think of the movies that he's in that you love, you know, uh, let's take train spotting, for example. Yeah. Was it because he was in it or was the movie as a whole great? Was it Danny Boyle? Uh, this movie, you know, did he make or break this film? No, he was well enough. <laughs> you know, but you I know like you and McGregor. I do you, like him. Yeah, I do too. You know what Ewan McGregor is? He's the cinematic equivalent of a game manager quarterback in the NFL, right? Like one of those guys where it's like, look, man, I don't need you to throw four touchdowns and win the game for us. I got an awesome defense. I got an awesome running back. All I need you to do is keep this thing humming along. Don't throw picks and don't make bad decisions, right? Yeah, like, right. You're never going to win MVP, but you're a huge part of making sure that we as a team win this game and you have a role here. And that's exactly yep. how I feel about Ewan McGregor every yeah. single time. <laughs> even He's when like, he tries to stretch, like even when he did, like even in season three of Fargo, it was like, okay, it's cool. I feel like, feel like Tom Cruise did this a lot better in uh, Tropic Thunder, but you know, you're trying here. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah. <laughs> so moving on, we kind of get a reverse of that cool scene where now Rose is going to go on a little sort of psychic trip of her own. And she actually flies out through space. It's obviously her psychic projection and flies into Abra's room uh, and is going to sort of, you know, kidnap her, do whatever she does. Lo and behold, it's actually a trap that she set for her. And as Rose is going through these giant stacks of boxes with, you know, these things that she may have locked up, uh, Abra ends up slamming the cabinet shut on her hand and trapping her rose is trying really hard to escape her hand gets mangled but she is finally able to wrench it away and uh is able to you know escape and fly back away and we start to see that things are not as easy for the knot anymore when she gets back we see that there's an old man there that's actually dying he's what they call cycling where he's kind of going through this ethereal phase like he's there he's not he's tangible he's not and again cracks are starting to show in rose's facade this is another clip that i actually brought to listen to so let's go ahead and hear the teenage girls start to question a lot of what rose is doing i don't understand you will i thought we lived forever did someone promise you that, Andy? Did someone say you were immortal? I said, live long, eat well. We can live long, very long. And we do, most of us. But we haven't been eating well. Not for a long time. Rosie's going. Rosie. Gladiators in Rome sailed across oceans to new worlds. While you fed on kings and princes and popes, they wrote myths of you. 
and made statues. And they trembled in their villages and beds and skyscrapers. So no, you're not scared. You're a king. And you eat fear. You know, it's funny, Ryan. Uh, I totally forgot what you said her name was and called her the 15-year-old girl. <laughs> Snake bite Andy. Snake bite Andy. Sounds like Damn a, it. Sounds like a Toy Story character. <laughs> no, dude, no, dude, dude. That sounds like some redneck ass hillbilly that gets drunk up at the Sundown, which is a bar two miles away from where I live. Used to be called oh, the Rattlesnake. Okay. Yeah. No, like Snake, Snake bite, bite Andy, Andy. Like, like where's a where's an eye patch and drinks whiskey from the bottle and and you know warns you of of the oncoming dangers of liberalism and shit right like that's snake by Andy. you mean 70% of florida <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome dude yeah i uh, i it's funny because i live in like a very a very little sort of like conservative little patch of los angeles so i feel like when you make some of your references i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah but minus the camouflage <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh yeah so you know after that whole thing happens it chapter five begins and danny and bill and abra all go back to abra's dad to sort of show him what's going on he gets freaked out. Well, first, out. He, they, they got to go dig up the baseball kid. Um, oh, that's because, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, uh, old Danny T, uh, you know, was on the fence about joining in on this whole Abra adventure. He was just trying to downplay it and enjoy his little quiet sobriety town. And uh, he gets roped into this whole shining adventure and uh, begrudgingly. And uh, she was like, you know, I saw this kid get murdered. They're coming after me next. Um, I tried trapping, you know, this girl Rose and this and that. I turned her hand into a McRib and now you got to go <laughs> dig up this kid, um, with your sobriety accountability buddy so that you can find <laughs> out what the fuck is going on and help me. And he's like, okay, so all of that, I'm going to take a no on. I'm like, doing really well right now. I'm working as an orderly at the hospice. Everything's going good. Got a friend that's a cat. Everything's all right. And, uh, <laughs> So then he goes and digs up this kid, um, which I wanted to ask you, what the fuck? Like, how do you explain <laughs> digging up a kid? Did they just leave that kid there? Did they turn him over to the authorities? Um, the director and author and writer of all this whole situation just kind of wrote that out. Like, I was like, how do you just go about digging up a kid? You're like, man, yep, there's a kid. And then you just get in the car and go home. They drove hours to get to that kid. And then, <laughs> or if you turn it over to the cops... The cops are going to have some, I mean, you're going to have some explaining to do, Lucy. Like, I don't understand why, <laughs> how you could just go turn a dead body that's obviously been poked, prodded, tortured, and drained of its life source. Um, obvi- and then also, when they soak up the juice, the the vape juice, um, to, to sustain themselves, the the knot, uh, they leave nothing behind. It They, they, they kind of disintegrate the body, if you will. So really, you're just holding on to a bunch of, like, loose clothing, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, here's the thing that I will say. So the reason that that whole scene exists is to prove to Billy that Danny's not crazy. That's the whole thing. And then to so because Abra right. and Abra ends up seeing it psychically. And so she yep. knows where it is. And so she's basically like, 
Danny, Billy, you guys got to help me. And they're like, ah. And then, you know, Billy's like, whatever. So Abra uses her shine to find out where it is. They go, they dig it up. And then Billy is like, huh, okay, look at that. You're not crazy. Yeah, you know, let well, me join plus, up with you guys and help out. I, I see your point as a motivating factor for Billy, but also uh, wasn't it so they could get the kid's baseball glove so that uh, Abra could touch it and yeah. psychically see where Rose was? So yeah, they could that's start the to other aspect her. of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was it was justified, I would say. No, no, it was totally justified. I was uh, saying more or less like, what do you do with a with a dead kid now? Oh, yeah, <laughs> they just kind of leave it there that. for dead. Or it like, just seemed like, yeah. yeah, like an odd situation to put Danny in. Like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> now I got this dead kid. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear what you're saying, dude. I guess, uh, yeah, and we can't even say maybe they take, we can't even say maybe they address that in the director's cut because we watched it, so. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So, yeah, so, you know, that whole thing happens. Bill's in. Everyone's in. They go back to Aubrey's dad, show him what's going on with a little sort of psychic projection touchy-touch. And, you know, he's appropriately freaked, shaken, has a little drink. And uh, they end up convincing him to sign off on a plan to use Aubra to set a trap for the knot. Now, here's another interesting. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> nah, she's she's been missing for weeks and you know but i've seen her for half an hour i know she's good you guys run off you crazy little scamps. most understanding family of all <laughs> time <laughs> yeah yeah uh, very very quick to uh change their their ways of thinking you know they're very progressive and they way. have written off Spoons on the ceiling, pianos playing itself, <laughs> totally normal. Uh, the kid disappears uh, for major uh, amounts of time. Uh, also, no big deal. Uh, no one told the mom of this plan of using the child for bait. Terrible husbandry. Um, <laughs> I don't think you could pull this off using your daughter as bait for a uh, murderous cult of gypsies and not tell uh, tell your wife. I how do you think she would take that, Jason? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, that's probably, I think that definitely falls within the realm of asking forgiveness instead of permission, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to need a lot You're not going to get a sign off on that, on. dude. You just got to do that happen yeah. and then, you know, do serve your penance afterwards. That's, that's just how yep. you do. <laughs> <laughs> got to use the kid as bait. Sometimes you got to do that. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about this next scene uh, is where they, you know, they they basically lure the knot and pick them off and stuff. Get to in just a moment. Is that this is actually the end of the book? So oh, wow, yeah. It, and and instead of happening in the forest, it happens at the Overlook, and it, and it's a sort of like a much larger sort of drawn out thing. This is one of the ah. interesting things. So the filmmaker found himself in a very unique situation where. He liked the book. He respected the book. He respected Stephen King. He liked the movie. He respected Stanley Kubrick and, he, you know, everything about that. So he actually not was forced to, but he put it upon himself to come up with an ending that would satisfy both Stephen King as well as fans of the movie, because obviously Stanley Kubrick is no longer with us, but... He knew that people were going to be watching the movie as the sequel to The Shining, the movie. But with Stephen, especially with Stephen King still being alive, 
he he really wanted to make sure that he didn't piss him off and have him talking shit about his movie the same way he did Kubrick's movie, right? So he basically worked to come up with an ending that satisfied both. So the next scene is basically Abra uses herself as some bait. She puts herself in a sort of in, in, in like a park, seemingly meditating on a table or sitting there, whatever. Rose and the True Knot find her, surround her, go to capture her. And then, like I said, we realize very soon that it's a trap. Danny and Billy are actually standing, you know, up above behind some trees with rifles. And they just start picking them off one by one. And so within, you know, a handful of minutes, pretty much everybody's dead. Rose isn't there. She's basically psychic projecting from elsewhere. And, you know, she's kind of crying and, and, you know, upset that everyone's getting picked off as it's happening. But the one aspect of it that I kind of did like that that I thought was interesting is when Bill's about to kill uh, Alex. What is it? Gunshot Alex? The hell's her name again? Cannot remember this. A snake bite Andy. Snake bite Andy. Uh, gunshot Alex. <laughs> snake bite Andy. Alex. Same thing. Whatever, dude. What's her I name? Ro- <laughs> Romeo Sixpack. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, so, anyways, man. so Romeo Sixpack scene finds Billy. And uh, she's basically like, you should kill yourself and he can't fight it. And he immediately does. And I I really like when movies do like those very sort of quick came out of nowhere things that are actions that are still motivated by story and character. I I, that was one of those ones I didn't really see coming. It happened super quick, took me by surprise. That was a nice little moment. But either way, Danny is still able to end up killing her and so everybody at this point is dead except for crow and rose i believe maybe one or two other people Uh, and then the entire time that this has been going on crow's actually been making his way back over to abra's house and so right after they kill pretty much everybody in the forest uh crow ends up kidnapping abra and killing dad and so, you know, Dan goes back, he finds this, he's stunned. We get that moment with every alcoholic movie character where they're almost going to drink and you're like, don't do it, buddy. But, you know, he's not going to because this is, <laughs> of course, you know, like this isn't the type of movie that's going to take us a chance like that. Right. Like, and it would probably hurt the sympathy. So I understand why that that dad, Albra's dad, uh, worst parent of the year for starters <laughs> you, you don't put your daughter up as bait against a bunch of psychic vampire gypsies and number two if you're gonna do that uh at least prepare yourself with more than a um dull kitchen knife uh, to protect <laughs> yourself and your daughter because when crow comes in and he's armed to the teeth and ready to rock and roll the dad pulls out a kitchen knife and says don't don't come a step further in that whole bit uh that sure. we've seen a million times it's like dude you're putting your family on the line you did not tell your wife this was happening you're in a lot of trouble and you have armed yourself with a knife that you grabbed out of the kitchen drawer fantastic <laughs> you're doing a great job of ferreting what the fuck <laughs> well you know and for what it's worth too is uh he didn't really seem like he was like your sort of a traditional man's man you know uh they made it seem like he was some sort of like writer or intellectual or something. So maybe there was something to that or maybe it was just poorly motivated. Who's to say? Aren't you a writer, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I mean, that all depends. Uh, do you have to make money 
to be considered a writer? Because <laughs> if no, so, then no, sir. <laughs> I'd like to do a throw a callback to episode one of uh, Esoterica. Uh, do you even art? Do you even art, bro? <laughs> <laughs> oh, if we're talking about art, yes, because true artists toil in obscurity until the day they die, and I am well on that path, sir. So keep at it. Hopefully my daughter can live well off of all of my work that'll sell 100 years down the road after I die. Keep at it. (laughs) Doing this for you, baby girl. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there was another cool scene after that, too. So Crow is going back to, uh, you know, he has Abra. She's drugged. She's in the van. He's going back to Rose the Hat. And Danny realizes that uh, he can basically psychic project himself he can basically like possess her body um and so you know when when abra's passed out danny's able to locate her through the shine and then jump into her body and end up having a conversation with crow as abra but really danny and i thought that was just kind of like a cool little dynamic i liked the way that they sort of were able to take advantage of the rules that they had set up in in ways that they kind of really didn't too much over the course of the movie so I really liked that, and then I like the way that it ends where, you know, they basically crash the van, and Crow just goes, like, launching through the windshield in very dramatic fashion. Absolutely. Second <laughs> coolest car crash we've had on this show, second to Cure for Wellness, which was also a pretty dope car crash with the deer. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. And, uh, you know, so obviously Rose projects. She finds out that, you know, Crow's killed. She's, no, no. And then I thought it was funny because she's like, all right, I'm going to go take on this, uh, you know, Abra chick. And she basically does it by like taking two canisters of steam to the head. And I don't know. It just felt like the equivalent <laughs> of like, I'm going to get higher than I've ever been and go on a rampage. Right. Like the, the skinhead who's like, I'm going to do an entire eight ball to the head and then go crazy. Yeah. Right. Like she's like, like let's she's get high. Vampire oh, Bane or something. so yeah so she ends up like taking two canisters of steam and you know goes over to find her meanwhile dan picks up abra and is going to go to colorado to the overlook to set up our third and final act and so uh it was you know nostalgia what have you it was really you know it's always just cool to go back to the overlook especially when again it is sort of a sentient character and it does sort of exist again, you know, as a character. And so uh, it's almost like seeing an old friend again, you know, it was pretty cool. Awfully long drive from New Hampshire though. Yeah. <laughs> You'd imagine they had to <laughs> fill up for gas more than once. Yeah. Road trip <laughs> to, the, and, to the possessed hotel. Yeah. And then as they're driving up, you know, it does a good job of mimicking the, you know, overhead shots and helicopter shots from the original shining driving up the mountain, except it's at night instead of day. And, uh, you know, when they get there, obviously the hotel's been shut down for a long time. It's very dusty, very dark. And uh, Danny knows that the hotel does have this crazy sentience. He knows that there's a potential that it could overtake Abra. So he tells her to wait in the car. She's also going to be a lookout looking for Rose. And this is, I think, kind of demonstrating the point of the question that you asked just at the beginning of this segment which is, you know, what's the exact nature of the hotel and its relationship to Danny and his life essence? Because as Danny goes into the hotel, basically the hotel starts to wake up again. And I thought that yeah. that was really well done. And it's, so it's basically like 
again, you know, thinking of him as this sort of like psycho spiritual battery of sorts for the hotel to be able to feed off of and, and come to life. We do see it start to come to life. I really liked the way, Ryan, that they used the different sound effects, you know, like just the, you know, the, the hums of some of the mechanical parts coming back on and yep, the clinking yep, of the electrical exactly. coils, you know, kind of sparking and clinking back and forth to life. I really enjoyed uh, the way that they did that. And then there's also a scene right after that where Dan walks to the bar. And I really liked this scene as well, where he has the same sort of Lloyd bartender engagement that his dad had, except Lloyd this time is basically his father, Jack Torrance. I do have a clip of this that I'm going to go ahead and play for people here. So let's go ahead and give it a listen. Mom and I, we never wanted to see snow again. So we lived in Florida tiny place but it was comfortable and we were happy I was 20 when she died and back then I saw when someone was going to die I saw flies black flies, death flies I called them circling people's faces and in those last weeks she was covered her whole face I could barely see her eyes and I I tried to comfort her but I could hardly look at her And she saw that. Maybe something warm to push away such unpleasantries. Don't you want to hear about it? She was your wife. I think you've mistaken me for someone else. I'm just a bartender. Oh, yeah. Just Lloyd the bartender, pouring joy at the Overlook Hotel. I'll pour whatever you like, Mr. Torrance. Man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes a man. Ain't it so, Dad? Medicine. Medicine is what it is. So, Ryan, what did you think, by the way, of the new actors they got to play the old actors? I thought it was done well enough. <laughs> I know that's what we just got through saying about Ewan McGregor's uh, performance, but uh, yeah, I thought it was well enough. Um, h- how do you... So, for starters, they didn't beat you over the head with it. They didn't milk it. They just kind of uh, used it for what they needed to and got out. I thought that that was the proper way to do it, uh, to not be gratuitous. Um, when Rose shows up to the Overlook and starts to confront them Mm -hmm. uh, in the hotel and meander. The only thing I thought that was gratuitous was the elevators opening up and the blood coming out and her watching this happen. And then she's like, not today. And then she like walks away. And I was like, that was a little beating me over. Like I didn't need it. Kubrick did that perfectly. That was cool in that movie. We didn't need to see that. It, there's no way that just happens all the time, like the 5 p.m. show of Fantasmic <laughs> at Disney World. You know what I mean? Like, the elevator's opened up. Like, oh, shit, now we're on to some stuff now. Like, the, <laughs> the parade's about to start, the parade of blood. Yeah. So I guys, guys, come on, we got to get over there. The elevators are the about to open. The blood's about come to start. On. 
Although that would be cool if there was a <laughs> overlook hotel I could go visit and that did happen every hour on the hour. At Disneyland, <laughs> like if just like one of the stores open up and mainstream just floods with blood. And it's yeah, got like the Main right. Street Electrical Parade song, like do 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 But I thought so. I thought that was a little uh, gratuitous. Um, it, it did kind of also remind me of, like, it was just fan service at yeah. that point, which is fine. Um, but it, do you remember in the original Iron Man where Rhodey looked at the war machine armor and he's like, maybe next time, and then he like yeah. walked away, <laughs> and uh, only to find out that we get War Machine in episode two. I thought that was kind of just a little bit like that too. It was just fan service and totally. Easter egg, but it, but it was a big old Easter egg. So it was like, I mean, it wasn't even Easter egg. There was no hunt. They just like gave you the egg. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all right. Definitely, but uh, but uh, as far as the character uh, replacements and stuff, I, I thought that they it was done fine. I loved to see that bathroom again. Um, yeah, that was I, great. I, I wish, yeah, dude, that red and white bathroom's the best. Uh, I know the the flooring, um, the the pattern on the carpet gets like probably the most attention in the film uh, as far as being iconic. But yeah. uh, that bathroom is always what I loved. That red and white, love it. Yeah, man. Yeah, the whole thing's great. And and I do like the way that the entire third act sort of references the original movie. Now that we've sort of gotten the, the ending of the book out of the way in the forest, we can kind of go back to wrapping up the movie. And so Rose basically arrives, and they're basically going to try to lure her into a mind trap so that they can capture her within the hedge maze. And I guess that's sort of like the ultimate plan is to keep her sort of trapped within this hedge maze. Doesn't quite work out that way. Rose is quite powerful from the crazy amount of steam. And uh, so she's, you know, <laughs> she's the uh, she's basically playing the aggressor. And I really like the way that they set it up to where it's sort of a role reversal where Danny is, you know, playing the Shelley Duvall character in Wendy and sort of backing away from Rose, who's the aggressor the same way that Jack was. And I think he's even got like a like a baseball bat or, or something, axe, whatever it is that he's sort of swinging at her as she approaches. And uh, I think that it was a cool play. Even even the shots, you know, the way that Rose is going up the staircase and there's like the over the shoulder. It, it was a nice wink and nod to the original. And yeah, a little crazy. His dad's typewriter is still set up and everything yeah. um, below the stairs. Uh, I'm sure some police investigators would have taken that as evidence <laughs> after the original <laughs> <laughs> shit went down. Well, and I think but, the idea, too, as well, is that like the hotel is kind of planting these things there. You know, whether okay. they're 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. percent true or not, you can't really say. But I think it's. Yeah, it's like the hotel's like, remember the typewriter? Yeah, you remember, yeah. right? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come back to old Overlook, huh? Who loves you, baby? The Overlook loves you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so she ends up uh, shanking him, and she's got, you know, she's about to twist the knife, and she's about to kill him, and that's when Dan ends up, revealing that he has lured her into a trap of his own and he ends up unlocking all of those boxes in his mind going back to the beginning of the segment and so that's where the importance of that comes in is by doing that he basically lets out all of the evil from the shining from the overlook that he had trapped up for so long and then those people or those evil spirits you know, every everyone from every everyone from the original. You know, the twins, uh, Lloyd, Jack, 
the guy in the bear suit giving the other dude head, right? Like, they're all back, and they end up sort of feasting on Rose's body, kind of like a zombie sort of thing. So I did kind of like... I guess we know what part of the body fellatio bear took. (laughs) (laughs) And I did like the way... Save some crotch for me! (laughs) I'm more of a... I'm more of a testicle man myself, so just... (laughs) One is fine, I don't need both. One is fine. (laughs) <laughs> but I did like the way that they were able to bring that back, you know, and sort of, again, you know, they satisfied both the book and the movie very well. Uh, the, the the box element plays prominently in the book, so they made sure to show that a proper amount of respect. And, you know, from there, Abra runs inside. She rescues Dan, but he's also becoming consumed by the evil of this hotel. So then we also get what I think was kind of a cool little twist where he sort of ends up, you know, the the hotel is now gaining more power and it's having more influence on him. Aubrey's able to resist it, but Danny ends up, in essence, recreating his father's sort of pursuit through the hotel. And so he's like, you know, chasing her with the axe or whatever. And uh, they end up in the boiler room and there's this projection of his mom that's there, kind of makes them feel a little bit calm or whatever. Uh, but the boiler room goes off and the entire... The hotel goes up in flames. So and then from there, you know, so that's pretty much, you know, he ends up dying. The Rose the Hat ends up dying. The the hotel and all the evil associated end up. Basically, everybody but Abra ends up dying, including dad. And so, uh, it, yeah, <laughs> it was sad to see Danny Torrance uh, go that way after, you know, the shining and everything and, and knowing what the kid's been up to. But he had a lot of dead bodies to explain to the cops at the end of that movie. So it was probably <laughs> for the best, you know, uh, he, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of dead bodies. You just got to burn the whole thing down and start over. Yeah. And then the funny thing too, Ryan, is that also references the ending of the original book, the shining where the ending of that book is that the hotel ends up exploding because Jack Torrance Basically, like he has to release the pressure in the boiler room every so often because if he doesn't, then it gets past a certain point, it's going to explode. And so at the end of the book, when he's basically like going insane and chasing down his family, he totally forgets that he's neglected the boiler room forever. By the time he remembers and tries to run back down, it's too late and the place explodes. So this, Uh. I also think, kind of references and satisfies that as well. So Mike Flanagan... if like, the Overlook Hotel explodes in the first book, uh, how does it end at the Overlook Hotel in the second book? So the funny thing is that they never actually go inside of the hotel. So everything that we're talking about right now, basically everything from the moment that they get to the hotel uh, and 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 Dan leaves Abra in the car and goes inside, that's all an original aspect of the story from Mike Flanagan that he wrote to satisfy the sequel of the movie because in the book when they're when they're picking off the the uh, knot out in the woods you correct. Said that took place actually in the book in the uh, outside the overlook so it took place outside the rubble of the overlook why would the, why did they go to the overlook in the first place all the way from New Hampshire I I don't re- I don't remember what the motivation for that was to be honest I don't know if you know this like I mean well you do know you mentioned it like even now that he's sober Stephen King books are still 900 pages long and you yeah. know it's just there's going to be certain things that I just like I'm not one of those people that remembers every page and every story beat I, I don't remember the exact reason I do remember I didn't necessarily have a problem with it so it must have been at least okay because I, I do tend to 
remember the harsh things of like, ah, there's no way that's ridiculous. (laughs) Right. So like the fact that I didn't have that response tells me they probably did an okay job of it. Um, but yeah, but, but you know, everything takes place on the outside and these structures outside of it. And, and I think it's also because they have like the, the trailers that they caravan with. I'm pretty sure that played into something. Uh, yeah, I just wasn't sure if it was like sacred ground, like an Indian burial ground, like a needful thing slash poltergeist type situation. Maybe that the overlook was built on. <laughs> if you had some insight into that, but I guess yeah, no, I, this is just uh, for whatever <laughs> reason. Yeah, it took on a it took on a sort of evil. I don't believe it had really much. I think it was one of those. Yeah, the you know the, I think it's basically like bad things happened at the hotel, and it's sort of like it basically like the overlook hotel is your cast iron skillet, right? Every meal that you cook in it, it absorbs a little bit of the flavor. And so I think the (laughs) Overlook had a number of bad things and it just sort of absorbed a little bit of the flavor of those bad things. And it started accumulating over time until it just, you know, grew and grew and needed more and more. So I think that's kind of the general idea of it. And then the final scene is, you know, Abra's back home. She's talking to Dan, but we soon realize that that's actually just a projection and he's dead. And, you know, there's the whole thing about how people persist, you know, beyond time, etc. So, uh, you know, with him having introduced the notion of the boxes to Abra, she goes into the bathroom to deal with the old evil woman from room two, uh, 237. And, you know, armed with that knowledge, she smiles and closes the door. And the movie's over. That poor, creepy old woman... Uh raisins and the potato salad <laughs> was doomed to live in public restrooms for the rest of her li- uh, <laughs> life. Just watching people take shit after shit after shit in front of her. Uh, I'd be a little cranky too. So, you know, uh, it seems like a giant pain in the ass to be a ghost. So I hope ghosts aren't real. Um, I hope I'm never a ghost because <laughs> Lord knows where I would get stuck. Uh, that'd be get a bit of a bummer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and, as we do at the end of these segments, give us your three adjectives to describe Dr. Sleep, director's cut. Yeah, so much like everything else we described in this movie, this movie was well enough. I did not dislike <laughs> it. I didn't love it. Um, uh, my three words are standard. Because it's just kind of like, yeah, that's, that is, yeah. And then uh, <laughs> Worthy, I did think it was a worthy successor to The Shining. Because nice. again, tough act to follow. Um, you know, it's just such a heralded classic. To even take this on as a project, uh, pretty pretty courageous by the director. Um, and so I thought it was worthy. I thought they did a good job, especially handling the classic characters and some of the character replacement, like what you talked about, bringing in the overlook and all these things. So I thought it was worthy, uh, but it was pretty, pardon the pun, by the book. Uh, hey. I didn't think they really, uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't think they really went outside, uh, you know, the, the, the guidelines of how to make a movie just kind of seemed A to B to C. Um, it did jump around quite a bit. If you, as the listener, couldn't tell by our description of this film, it was also very long. Uh, Stephen King movies can be very long. That's why you get two-parters like It. Uh, a lot of his movies get made into miniseries. It's hard to wrap up, like like you were saying, Jason, a thousand-page, twelve hundred-page book, you know, and into, into a film. So. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm glad we did watch the director's cut. I don't know what they would have cut out. I'm curious about that. I did not think there was a lot of fat on the bones here to, to trim. But yeah, standard, worthy, by the book. Not a lot of chances taken. It just kind of was. Fair enough, my friend. Fair enough. I think I uh, I think I liked it a little bit better than you did. We'll we'll formalize that here in just a moment. For my response, for my three adjectives, uh, the first is a little on the nose, but suspenseful. You know, I thought I did a really good job of keeping up the suspense. And, you know, it's not, it's, I mean, probably fair that it's a Shining sequel, but in the way that The Shining isn't a traditional horror movie, Doctor Sleep is even less of a traditional horror movie. I would say that it's not even necessarily like a thriller, though it kind of is, but it's almost like an action-adventure thriller with horror and supernatural elements. It's kind of interesting, so, but it is susp- it is suspenseful, and the other thing is that I thought it was efficient, because like like you said, you know, there's very little fat on that bone. There's not a lot. I, like I said, I would I would like to know what half hour or combination of scenes they cut out to remove half an hour from the film, because I thought that everything was pretty essential. And again, they didn't waste your time. And there is a lot of content from the book and they really didn't cut out anything. So the fact that they were able to take, you know, a roughly 900 page book and, you know, present the whole thing efficiently in three hours, I found pretty impressive. And then it was, well, and it sounds like they stapled on a, a an extra ending to it too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they got another 20 me. minutes or so there at the end. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So I thought they did a great job of that. And then uh, it was just an engaging movie, you know I mean? Again, like, for some of the movies we've done where Solaris or Cure for Wellness or Wild Strawberries, like, you know, when typically when we have a two and a half to three hour movie, it's a little rough, you know, and it feels like it's a little maybe self-indulgent and it didn't, you know, oftentimes it's like, you know, like with a Cure for Wellness, right? We both agree you could have taken an hour of that movie. It wouldn't be any different. So the fact that a three hour movie can just hold my attention the entire time, you know, didn't as you mentioned, sometimes didn't feel a need to look at the phone or get up or do any of that. Uh, very engaging film. So suspenseful, efficient, and engaging is how I'm going to describe Dr. Sleep. Ryan, I want to hear what your grade rating is. I've got an idea, but I want to hear what you say. C+. Plus. I knew it, man. I knew it. The good old <laughs> C+, plus for Ryan Siebold. His grade of choice. Uh, Putting the C in Seabold. <laughs> Ryan C plus bold. Should that be your new yeah, last name? Why not? Yeah. yeah. The plus is a bold move. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, everyone. We really should be striving uh, for more yeah, than this. I'm editing that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, I think that puts me ahead of you then. Uh, out of five stars, I'm going to go ahead and give this one four and one quarter. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a very, very solid movie. I would put it as a a very good movie, just short of great. And uh, yeah, so again, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and and give that, give that bad boy four and a quarter out of five stars for Dr. Sleep. Guys, we're going to cut to a quick commercial break. We will be back after this with the comparison feature, as well as some new films for you. Stick around. Welcome back to the Jerry Springer Show, ladies and gentlemen. Today we have a special guest in our studio. He is a celebrated author of the macabre and the supernatural. Please welcome Mr. Stephen King. 
Thanks a lot for having me, Jerry. Comfy chair. Now, Steven, you are here today to confront someone that you feel has done you wrong, is that correct? Yes, sirree, Bab. The name's Jerry, actually. <laughs> and who is this person? Well, he's a man who took a Cracker Jack story of mine and turned it into just a bunch of Tommy Rot. <laughs> and, uh, why do you think he made these changes? Because he's a carpetbagger and a plebeian? I'm telling you, this one's a real butter and egg man he is. All right, well, let's go ahead and bring him out, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Stanley Kubrick. Well, hello to all you fine folks out there, and, uh, let me just be the first to say, suck my monolith, you uncultured miscreants. Charming. <laughs> Stanley, thanks for coming on the show. Well, anything for you, Jerry. Do you recognize the man sitting across from you? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, hard to say exactly, but uh, if he is who I, uh, who I think he is, then I'm uh, looking at a failed artist who hoodwinked an entire generation into thinking he writes scary novels. Psh, better than making boring movies. Stanley, Stephen claims that you actually altered a number of ideas from his book. Is that true? Well, uh, certainly. I mean, uh, I uh, wasn't going to attach my name to crap, so I had to make it better. Aw, oh, come on, man. What was crappy about it, Stanley? Well, instead of really examining the uh, psychological torture this protagonist was going through, the uh, would-be author chose to simply make him a drunk that gets chased by lawn decorations. I, I couldn't abide that. You know, I'm a better writer than you'll ever be. That's why every single one of your screenplays is based on someone else's book. Well, really? Okay, that's interesting. So, uh, you know what I want you to do is, uh, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take all the most famous scenes from the film and tell me who wrote them. Blood in the Elevator? Yeah, that's me. Creepy Twins? Yeah, me again. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Let me see, who was that? Uh, oh yeah, that was me. Hey, you want me to keep going and mention the, uh, the hedge maze? Wait a minute. Steven, is all that true? <coughs> well, maybe. Aww. But that doesn't mean he had to go changing my character's name from John to Jack. Well, uh, John's a stupid name, isn't it? I mean, it's like Steven. You put a P and H and it makes a V sound? What the hell is that? Hey, f*** you, man. Well, uh, that's uh, just the level of eloquence I'd expect from a uh, man who ingested so much cocaine he doesn't even remember writing a stupid book about an evil dog. You know what? That's it. Eat chair, motherfucker. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Settle down, guys. He started it. And I'm going to finish it, too. Just like I finished your wife last night. Leave Tabitha out of this! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! I think we're gonna have to take a quick commercial break here. We'll be back after these messages with final thoughts. Alright, Ryan, so it is that time. You know, pretty good week, man. Uh, I really I really enjoyed this week's films, Diving Bell and the Butterfly and Doctor Sleep. I think I enjoyed both of them more than you did, just based on the ratings. But, uh, I mean, this still seemed like you reasonably enjoyed both films, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were good. I, I was never bored with either of these films, uh, specifically seeing as how Diving Bell and the Butterfly all took place in uh, a man's head in French, and <laughs> Dr. Sleep was three hours, um, a three-hour sequel to a classic film, which usually doesn't pan out very well. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I'd say, you know, pretty solid week of films. Definitely. I agree. I agree. So, as we do, Ryan, we end with the comparison feature. Uh, what was one of the things that you noticed about these two films that sort of brought them together? Uh, these were two two films that were kind of hard to compare and contrast. I would I kind of leaned on the fact that uh, Dan Torrance um, and Jean Doe, both of our characters, were men that were in different ways locked inside their own minds and kind of tortured by their own demons and ghosts in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, the overlook and the happenings thereof and everything beyond uh, was kind of uh, Dan Torrance's diving bell and uh, his adventure with Abra and uh, eventual destruction of the overlook uh, uh, by way of his own demons and past uh, was kind of his butterfly and his awakening and his way of putting that all behind him and and uh, becoming the ghost that he always deserved to be. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, definitely. I totally appreciate that. Yeah. I think I have kind of a it's tangentially related. Uh, I think that this is what's interesting about both of these films is that they, in essence, both argue about the power of the mind. I think that's the sort of central theme that really connects both of these films. Because with Diving Bell, obviously, we have a character where his mind is active, but his body is not. And so he's basically just all thoughts, all mentality, all mind, and as difficult as that can be at first, he's basically able to strengthen his resolve. He's able to come to terms with just the nature of a situation. And he's also able to create this beautiful metaphor in the butterfly and then use that to harness the power of his imagination. And in doing this, he's able to create this wonderful book and give his life meaning in its final stages and still go out with a sort of very strong contribution. And he's able to do that strictly by the power of his mind. And in the same way, Dr. Sleep argues that the more powerful person or the more powerful energy vampire or person with the shine or whatever it is, is the stronger mind, right? So Abra and Danny are both coveted for their life force because of the powers of their minds. And Rose is ultimately all powerful and the leader of the knot because her mind is the more powerful. And again, you know, it's the movie states that those with the most powerful minds carry the most powerful life energy. So I think that just by virtue of these different statements that the films make, they both end up arguing that um, just again, you know, the mind is the most powerful thing that we have. And ultimately, it's who's ever stronger that is going to win in these, you know, great battles for life, death and whatever is beyond. All right, man. Well, hey, I know that uh, w- one of one of both of our uh, favorite aspects of this program is the uh, end part here where we get to choose our two new films for the next episode. We, of course, do this using our master list, which just mwah, has a beautiful 170 films on it. And uh, we're going to go ahead and pick two of them randomly here with our random number generator. So let's see what we got here. Hit me. (laughs) 
All right, so for our first trick, we are going to roll, and we are going to come back with one out of 170 puts us at 31. Now, Ryan, I think uh, we're going to have to take a minute here and just check this one out. I, I can already tell you this is probably going to be one of uh, one of my infamous additions to the list that I don't remember because I was probably oh, drunk when I added it. Uh, a movie. Fantastic. <laughs> it's a movie called Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. And uh, no, yeah, I have no idea what that is. We yeah, look that one up. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally, I, I totally do. See, it's funny, listeners, because like a lot of times I'll just be scrolling these random lists, right? Like I just probably because I don't want to be working at the time or something, right? And so I'll just go and check out really obscure lists and recommendations and things. And then I'll be like, oh, that's a perfect film for the program. I should put it on the list. And then I'll completely forget what it's about. So, you know, when something comes up, like if it's like a, you know, like a Crooklyn or, you know, a Hunt for Wilder People, one hour photo, you know, I can tell you that these films are, you know, from Spike Lee and Taika Waititi and Mark Romanek, right? But every now and then, we're going to get one of these films, like a Dagon. Uh, I'm looking at another one that's later in our list, Gozu. No idea what that is, but know that I put it on there. Um, so, yeah, every now and then we're going to get that. Ryan, you got something for us? Uh, from 2001, this is an hour and a half uh, fantasy horror mystery. Boating accident runs a young man and woman ashore in a decrepit Spanish fishing town, which they discover, which they discover is in the grips of an ancient sea god, uh, and its monstrous half-human offspring. I'm in. Oh, dude, this is Stuart Gordon. Yes. Oh, dude, I mean, for I don't Stuart Gordon. Is, for those uh, that don't based know, based on a book by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. It's based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, and for those that don't know, Stuart Gordon brought us the incomparable Reanimator. As well as From Beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I didn't know he was still making movies in 2001. I, That's awesome. I didn't either. I mean, he unfortunately, and, and you know, to give all respect, I mean, he passed away, I believe, last year, if not the year before, which was very unfortunate. But it turns out, I mean, he did Dolls. Like, he's done a ton more movies than just those two films. So, yeah, dude, I'm all about it, man. I mean. He did a movie in uh, 2005 called Edmund with Billy uh, William H Macy that I remember seeing on video shelves forever. Really, and I always wanted to rent it. Yeah, and so it looks like yeah, he's still out there. Yeah, and it looks like I can't tell. Like this is either a Spanish film or it was an American film released in Spain. Do you do you can you tell? I have no uh, input on that. But we're gonna find out. <laughs> All right. I man. hope it's like watchable it's oh okay it says it's on prime video for 3.99 so yeah 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 for sure so uh okay cool man all right well that's that's definitely interesting uh looking forward to that one one of the great things of of the way that this program works like we always find ourselves watching films like that we kind of forget about and uh, most of the time they end up being awesome so uh we got dagon which do you think that's how you pronounce it dagon Dagon, Dagon, Dagon. Yeah, I don't know. We'll hear because it, it looks film. like it looks like dragon without an R. So I'm going Dagon. Okay. All right. Let's check out this second film, man. Let's see what we got. See if we recognize it or not. Interesting. Okay. So so the random number generator is truly random, and it's keeping us in the top thirty. So for our second number, we're looking at eighteen. And when I go to eighteen. <laughs> now here's the great thing 
Both of us have seen this movie. If you're anything like me, it's been a really long time, and it's going to be fun to go back and check it out. The classic Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy comedy, Bowfinger. Yes! Right? (laughs) And, dude, I mean, Bowfinger is just one of the all-time classic, like, movie, film, satire sort of films. And, like, I mean, if you... If you haven't, anybody listening, if you like movies and have not seen Bowfinger, you are in for a damn treat, man. This is a good one. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm trying to think of when this came out. I want to say this was right around when Eddie Murphy went, like, super commercial. kind of Mid-90s or so, maybe, right? Even early 2000s, I want to say, when he started doing all the um, Dr. Doolittle films and all of that. Uh, started making family friendly friendly fair. Uh, it's also kind of the last time we saw Steve Martin for a minute. I don't remember him making a whole lot after this. He kind of went away. So this is kind of the last time I remember seeing classic Eddie Murphy and classic Steve Martin being totally silly and over the top. Uh, I loved it. Uh, and there's some great guest stars and cameo appearances and stuff in the film as well. I think Heather Graham even makes her way in, if I'm not mistaken. Been yeah. a while, though. No, she has a she definitely has a supporting role. And, Ryan, I actually just checked it out. Bowfinger is from the heralded, arguably, greatest year in cinematic history, 1999. Wow. that You want to call that the, the, the greatest year in cinematic history? Oh yeah, have we, have we not talked about this? The greatness of the year nineteen ninety nine, as it as it, as it yeah, relates yeah. to films. Me. Actually, you know what? Save it. Let's go ahead we're and gonna... save that for the Bowfinger episode. <laughs> yes. uh, everyone, stay tuned. This is a long. Uh, we're 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 sitting at a nice, uh, pretty time limit for our for our episode today because we did cover a three hour film. Uh, so. Uh, I want to go ahead and spare the the listeners <laughs> another forty five minutes. <laughs> well, and on our diatribe thing... into film history we'll save it for the bowfinger episode we will save it but the funny thing too is we're totally going to make it up to all you guys next week because you guys have two 90 minute movies so you can bang out your entire homework in one evening okay <laughs> fantastic yeah me too yeah yeah no, and it's by frank oz <laughs> holy shit that's right i forgot yeah. bowfinger was by frank oz written by, ri- written by steve martin eddie murphy playing dual twin roles it's such a good film i don't think i've seen it in a decade at least and i can't wait to revisit it man awesome and yeah. we get to compare it to uh an hbo craft uh Stuart gordon film that's fat- fantastic uh listening for <laughs> so yeah so i think i think we're in for a really fun week uh, this is definitely not going to be a, uh, you know, Solaris and Wild Strawberries weekend. Uh, certainly not going to be a, a Paths of Glory high and low weekend. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a fun one. So uh, and uh, well, what are we doing in between? I got some time to kill. You got a half episode episode for me? You know, I, I, I think I actually have one just waiting in the wings. So our next episode, for those that listen, you know that we alternate between the full episodes and the half episodes. At the time we're recording this, the great Sean Connery has just recently passed away within the last couple of weeks. And so, in the spirit of both our show and in homage to him, we are going to go with the arguably classic, depending on who you talk to, Zardoz. <laughs> That's right, Zardoz. And if you oh, have not I seen Zardoz... You are in for the weirdest head trip sci-fi film that you have seen in a really long time. 
This is just some straight from the 70s, oddball, whackness, psychedelic, what the fuckedness. And I think, honestly, dude, I've only ever seen it once. And I, and I may have been yeah. fucked up at the time because I really do not remember it too well. Uh, you and I watched this together. Okay, well, that explains fact. it. We certainly were. <laughs> <laughs> this was, uh, yeah, right right around, the, I think this was the same day you introduced me to what Los Angeles uh, street corn was. <laughs> Delicious. So that was quite Angeles a day in my corn. life. Yeah, no, dude, that was, <laughs> this was some formative experiences right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Connery in a slingshot bikini and some Mexican street corn. I'm all about it. Let's do this. Either way, lather up my street corn with mayonnaise and uh, let's get on with it. (laughs) So once again, guys, the next episode is going to be a half episode where we are going to look at Zardoz. And then after that, we're going to have a full episode featuring two films, Dagon and Bowfinger. So going to be a great episode or Dagon or Dagon <laughs> who's to say, or maybe it's like, you know, the, the French is it's French, you know, the G is silent. It's like Dijon or something like that, you know? Yeah. Or maybe it's Bowfinger. I don't know. <laughs> Bowfinger. Let's just watch these movies, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> As a reminder, we do love hearing from you guys. We've got a couple ways that you can get at us first. Go ahead and check out Esoterica cinema on the Instagram We have some really awesome pictures that we post there uh, with the films that we're looking at. We've got some quotes up there. Really nice layout. So uh, check us out on the Gram Gram. Go ahead and reach out. Check us out. You can also hit us up on the Twitter. Keep it to 280 characters. We are at Esoterica Cinema. And uh, finally, of course, we have the traditional old email. That one is EsotericaCinema at gmail.com. So... You can let us know if uh, you're really pissed off that the other day we made you watch Sweet Sweetback and now your mom's never going to talk to you again. Uh, You can totally reach out and let us know that uh, we're not nearly as funny as we think that we are. Uh, You also can send us nice things. You know, that's allowed too. Uh, You know, if you like our program, feel free to reach out. And then, of course, you know, there's somebody out there who's going to be, without even knowing it, about to or actively having the best muffin of their life and they're not going to have anyone to talk to and so for you out there eating that muffin please reach out and let us know on the twitter on the email on the instagram guys it has been a lot of fun ryan this was a great episode as always i had a great time with you and i can't wait to do it again so thanks everyone for joining us for this week's episode of esoterica cinema we'll see you next time From acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the novel people are hailing as an instant classic, Whiteout and Nick Ventner Adventure. Christian Walls says Ashton McCauley has brought to life an amazing world of the supernatural. Kyle Bennon remarks, Whiteout does an amazing job of mixing suspense, drama and humour. Alicia Jewett says, Whiteout is a thrilling story with great writing the kind of book that has you wanting to reach for the next one as soon as you finish the last page. And Nathan Hodgson exclaims, the pages practically turn themselves. Whiteout by Ashton McCauley, available in ebook, hardcover and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.